afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are listening to this. This is the Selm Film Project that you've you've uh, dialed into. Oh my goodness, I just remember, I just forgot. Uh, session uh, session three eleven. Three eleven. That's right. Six. That's right. This is not Dave Kale, but I have good news and bad news. Dave Kale is with us. This is Trish Lambert, one of the co-hosts. Dave Kale is with us, but he he has to talk very sparingly. Say hello, Dave. Uh, hello, listeners. Um, <laughs> there you go. And that's what he has to sparingly. Poor guy is not doing well today. But he came anyway. This is how we are at Sim Film. And I'm also here with Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. We've got a lot to cover today, so let's jump right in. We do. All right, absolutely. So uh, I am uh, I am looking forward to discussing our episode today. Of course, today we're getting the arrival of the Green Elves into Beleriand and the uh, kicking into high gear of Sauron's uh, invasion project in southern Beleriand. Of course, looking at the map up here, uh, it's kind of funny to think that, you know, we keep talking about it as like the North Beleriand and South Beleriand uh, uh, fronts of the of the war with Morgoth. But of course, by South Beleriand, we mean like 80% of Beleriand, right? Whereas uh, Gothmog is up in the north. But I guess since he's guarding against uh, the, uh, the arrival of like for all they know, the armies of the Valar, uh, that's still probably important. But anyhow, um, so I'm looking forward to talking about all that stuff today. Before we do, though, there are two things that I want to do uh, uh, briefly first. Uh, one is to do a couple announcements. Uh, first, uh, we have a really exciting thing coming up on Monday evening. So Monday evening, December 4th at 8.30 p.m., we have the premiere session uh, of the uh, Mythgard Movie Club. This is a new uh, a new thing that we're doing. It's going to meet every every month, every six weeks or so, um, and it's going to be a panel of Mythgard folks who are going to be discussing movies. You guys can have some input into which uh, movies they're going to be talking about. But for this first session, they're going to talk about uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, so if you'd like to hear a really uh, engaging, interesting panel uh, of folks talking about that film, tune in. Monday, December 4th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, I can give you... Let's see here. Let me give you here the link. I can post the link in both places to which I'm broadcasting. This is the registration link uh, for the webinar session uh, for that that session. So there it is on Twitch, and here it is in GoToWebinar itself. So uh, I hope you'll be able to join us for that. That should be... Uh, that should be a lot of fun. Um, uh, the uh, the the second announcement. Uh, this past Wednesday, day before yesterday, I started the new Mythgard Academy class on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Uh, we had a really fun discussion of the Hitchhiker's Guide, first three chapters of the, of the Hitchhiker's Guide. We got all the way through the destruction of the Earth uh, uh, in our first session. Next, this coming week, uh, on Wednesday, December 6th, we're going to be talking about chapters 4 through 7, and we'll get to, dis- to discuss Vogon poetry, which I am very strongly looking forward to. Uh, I was listening to the uh, the Stephen Fry reading of the Hitchhiker's Guide, which is, which is awesome. Uh, Stephen Fry is such a good reader, and uh, uh, I was I was actually while I was on vacation, I was or coming home from vacation. Actually, I was sitting in the airport waiting for our flight to board, just like 
giggling to myself <laughs> listening to the folk on poetry section uh, in the Hitchhiker's Guide. Like everyone else is like looking at me and kind of scooching away and everything. But anyway, so that session is going to be Wednesday, December 6th at 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. And uh, the third announcement, TexMoot is coming. Our next uh, next up on the, uh, the, the Mythgard and Signum Regional Events Parade is TexMoot down in Fort Worth, hosted by Scarborough College down there. Uh, it's going to be on January 13th, 2018. Uh, and uh, there's going to be an enormous panel of people. It's going to be awesome. There's 30 people presenting at this conference, uh, and uh, it's going to be... It, it, it's going to be really neat. The theme of the conference is stories for the refreshment of the spirit, looking at literature and healing. Uh, it's going to be really, really cool. So uh, I, you can get all the information you need on that at texmoot.org. Uh, they are uh, needing to do things bigger and better because it's Texas. They made their own web website for the for the conference. So there we are. Um, and yes, Mythalia, the, uh, the, the Hitchhiker's, both the Mythgard Movie Club and the Hitchhiker's Guide will both be on, on, on YouTube, uh, if you miss them. Um, but, um, but anyway, uh, and, uh, uh, so yeah, that'll be, that'll be all, that'll be all good. Um, so great. Um, let's, um, and so that's, those are announcements for this week. Uh, now, the before we start the session, though, of course, there was another very large announcement uh, since the last time we had a film film session, and that is the official announcement of the new deal uh, between Amazon Prime uh, and the Tolkien estate. And, of course, the even bigger news, which was very, f- very many fewer people registered right uh or noticed i mean I, lots of people in the tolkien world noticed this but in the general public uh the news which was really substantially larger than the amazon deal the fact that christopher tolkien has officially stepped down as uh, as the director of the tolkien estate um that's much bigger much bigger than the amazon news actually now as soon as that was announced, people started asking me, does this mean the Silmarillion is going to be included? And, uh, my answer is, well, it does not necessarily mean that, of course. Um, and I still, I say nothing different from what I have ever said about this. And that is, so long as Christopher Tolkien draws breath, there will not be a depiction of the Silmarillion. Um, I still well, believe still that to be true. he's still literary executor, right? I mean, he... He still has a voice. He still has a voice. Yeah. And he's still, uh, I mean, and he's still drawing breath. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I I don't think that his grandkids are, I mean, I think it's very likely that uh, after his death, the estate is going to become more flexible, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and leave off from, you know, and may, may, this might not be true. Of course, you know, we, we might be surprised. Uh, they might be every bit as, as much focused on preserving Tolkien's legacy as Christopher was. I'd be surprised, but it's possible. Um, however, I cannot imagine, you know, that his grandkids are going to, uh, like while he yet lives and is not in charge, uh, go on and, and sell the Silmarillion rights. I'm not even sure they legally can because he owns them personally because he published it. So uh, the, the mere fact that he has stepped down, I, I think does not, uh, um, does, does not <laughs> 
change the fact that we're not going to see a film version of the Silmarillion yet. Uh, so just wanted to make that perfectly clear. But anyway, it's still, nevertheless, like this is still a big deal. Uh, uh, definitely the end of a very long era and, you know, the, of the, you know, a, a well-deserved retirement. You know, most, most of us aspire to retire prior to the age of 93. Uh, but, um, anyway, that's, that's, that's um, uh, you, and, you know, yeah. and plus he published a book this year. So right. Like exactly. Just that he's been sitting around being the head of the estate. No, exactly. Time, you know? Yeah, no, he's, uh. He's done a great, great deal of work over, you know, the last 40-odd years or so. Um, so, um, anyhow, yeah, uh, it's a, but, but that's obviously big news. But as for the Amazon thing, of course, lots of people have been asking, um, you know, on Twitter and everything else. Had a, had a, I was off on vacation when this happened, of course, so I was actually in Hawaii uh, with my wife uh, uh, trying not to vex her by, like, constantly <laughs> engaging in Twitter conversations about the Amazon thing, but it was kind of a big deal. Um, anyway, uh, so it, the, the question that everybody was asking me was, you know, so are we going to do Riddles in the Dark 2.0? You know, when does that start? How are we going to do that? So, and it's a, it's, a, it's a big question, right? Because it has obvious implications uh, for film film, right? Because, of course we're not there yet in film film the the everything you know the indications are that they're going to do some prequel stuff they're not going to start with chapter one of the fellowship of the ring um my supposition there and it is only a supposition on my part is that we're going to get primarily young aragorn if i had to guess where they're going to start i would guess that they're going to start with like you know the day that Aragorn uh, finds out who he is. Basically, that would be my 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 early or guess. Maybe back as far as um, Gilrank, you know, the death of his father. I wonder if they go back that far. I don't. It's possible that they would just to give context. Um, uh, but uh, it, but anyway, it's it's uh, it's. It's it, it's possible. But anyhow, the point is not to begin now with, like, discussion and speculation about what they will begin, but rather to talk about our discussion and speculation about this. Uh, so, you know, if they start there, essentially, like, you know, in the general neighborhood of where we started our frame story for season three uh, and go through, they're going to be doing, essentially... Uh, just what we were planning to do when we get there. Like, in ten years, we were going to do exactly that same thing. Uh, after we'd gotten all the way through the first age and the second age, right, and done the fall of Numenor and the beginning of the third age and the battle of the last alliance and the, everything else, uh, then we were going to get to uh, the the seasons that uh, uh, that Amazon is, is looking to do. Uh, so... So the question, what are we going to do about this? Um, it certainly seems impossible to imagine that if, you know, with this going on, we're, not, we're just going to pretend it's not happening and not talk about it. Like, this is something we need to talk about. But on the other hand, I can't just add another session um, that I, I'm, I'm pretty much maxed out as far as the weekly right. podcast sessions that I'm running and, you know, teaching sessions that I'm running. Uh, I can't just add another thing on top of everything else that we do. So 
I'm, I haven't decided exactly what we're going to do. And, of course, there are several different factors uh, involved here. One factor, of course, uh, which is worth noting, is uh, I would love to actually work with the Amazon folks uh, on this. I would love to consult with them on this. And uh, I'm going to uh, – you know, I would love to see if, if we could make that happen. Um, if we can, of course, I would presumably be prevented by contractually from talking about it uh, and discussing it in advance of the release. Uh, so that would change the parameters of what could happen. So you just have to kind of acknowledge that. Um, but um, so... Well, so this can't be a riddles in the dark type thing anyway, because we don't have previously written material to compare it to. Um, it can't be exactly so, like that. So there are no. I, mean, I think we would have yeah. to wait until the show actually started to air and then comment on it. Yeah, and maybe some speculation as news trickles out beforehand. But well, see, that's going to be the thing. It's going to be very difficult not to do that. Like it's going to be very difficult not to talk as you know casting is released and things get leaked and we get images and remember how much fun we had analyzing trailers and uh, 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 and you know promotional images that got released and stuff like that like all that stuff is going to happen again and we're going to want to talk about it again so I'm just not sure Um, the uh, the other here's one uh, here's one radical option which is kind of intriguing. One radical option would be to basically f- flash forward with the Silm Film Project um, and just sort of pause our discussion of the Silmarillion for a while and do our own because see one of the things honestly that I find the biggest sort of downside for me I I, I like the fact that this thing is happening I am generally pro this initiative I don't have many reservations I mean of course it might be done really badly but that's always the case Uh, you know I don't have any particular reasons that mean like they'll use worms or something. Oh, yeah, exactly. I guess in some, to some extent, I'm, I'm at this point kind of like, how bad could it be? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, like there may or may not be sandworms, but, um, but anyway, to me, the biggest drawback is it's going to be hard, you know, a number of years from now, kind of just doing it, going over that ground again after the Amazon thing has already done it, right? That's going to be tricky. Um, you know, we all, of course, whenever, when, we're, when, when we get to the Lord of the Rings stuff, we're always going to have, you know, we always would have had the Peter Jackson stuff kind of looming over us, which is fine, and that's one thing. But to actually be trying to uh, chart our way through this material in the way that I'd always planned to do, after this exact kind of thing has already been done, is gonna be is gonna be hard. It's gonna be tricky. Um, so well, the difficulty is that because this is essentially fan fiction, right? You know, for them, probably even more so than 
well, I guess it would be the truth safe for us once we get there. You know, the field is open in terms of what's what they do story wise, right. who they involve, what the stories are about. You know, I mean, it, it's I suppose one thing it is hard. You know, I, I don't because we could take a completely different tack with the material, but would we be doing it in reaction to the show? Or? Exactly. Exactly. It's, See, I it's, mean, it is fraught for it, sure. In an know? ideal world, I want to crack at doing it first, yeah. you know, before yeah. we see what the, so to some extent, you know, one impulse is I'd like to talk about, you know, to speculate about and discuss what they're doing in the Amazon thing. And certainly to, you know, once it begins to be released, I think it's going to be sort of inevitable that we'll do a, you know, a, a regular discussion series on the show itself. Um, but I mean, I can't imagine not doing that one way or another. But I find the thing that I really want to do is not to do a Riddles in the Dark anticipation show exactly. But I want to do it myself before they yeah. do it. You know, well, I want to. That's the reason for we could we could put a pin in it where we are, yeah. basically now, more or less, and then fast forward to that period that they're talking about. We do our thing now because you know it's going to be a while before the their show opens. Right. right exactly. Um, if we started that soonish, like if we stopped after season, if we if as you say, if we kind of put a pin in it in the Silmarillion stuff after season three. And then flash right. forward. I mean, obviously, that's, I mean, as you know, and those of you who know me at all in any of the things that I do will know that there's nothing that goes against my own instincts more than that. I mean, jumping around and skipping ahead. Yeah. I don't skip yeah. ahead. I don't yeah. do that. I am a completionist. I march through from the beginning <laughs> to the end. Uh, uh, you know, you I mean, should have seen him on Tuesday with the Barrow White's poem. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Talk about so, a That was awesome. Oh, anyway. I, I loved it. <laughs> but anyway, like, I, so, I, I, you know, there's, there, there is much that I find, um, there is much that I find actually, you know, repulsive about the idea of jumping forward. But I feel like there's a certain amount of, you know, there's sort of enough urgency there that I'm at least interested in entertaining the possibility and wondering what you guys thought about that. You know, so if we, now let me, if we, yeah. Let me offer something here. I, I mean, I see an advantage here for all of us in this. I think it would be a really interesting learning exercise for us to work through it just the way you're saying. Yeah. And then having done that, we see how they do it. Yes. And we can say, oh, look at that. You know, this is how they dealt with such and such. Or I don't think they did such a good job with that. You know what I mean? It's right. like we can learn. Then we can be comparing and contrasting our treatment with yes. their treatment how as we, we go. It to their approach. Right. So it's like right. the next I mean, level I, up from Riddles in the Dark, attractive. essentially. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's, kind of, it's true. Yeah. Um, so that that's advantageous. Yeah. You know, that is attractive. Yeah, and uh, Nick, I agree. We do have an unfair advantage because we can use all the Silmarillion material we want <laughs> because we don't have any restrictions, being wholly theoretical. Um, so I totally agree. Uh, and but but it's, Trish, that's exactly the way that I was thinking. You know that it would it would make it uh, just think what better way to kind of prepare ourselves. Um, 
to, I mean, it, it would be like Riddles in the Dark in the sense of, like, the whole per, the whole premise of Riddles in the Dark was not just to guess about what they were going to do, but to go through and sort of examine the text f- uh, from the angle of an adaptation and think about what are the adaptation challenges, what are some difficult questions that are going to have to be answered one way or another, and how would we answer those questions? How do we expect Peter Jackson's going to answer those questions? That was what we did in Riddles in the Dark. We're going to be doing all of those same things, except, and again, this is to me even more attractive, we're going to be focusing first on just doing it our, just, 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 just on the text, right? Just on the text and sort of the pure in a vacuum, what are the, you know, how would we go about adapting this? Uh, of course, you know, so what will happen is we decide on the uh, Adventures of Young Aragorn approach, and then we discover they come out and it's all Hobbit-centric. Right. right. With some hobbit named Bongo or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very likely. I think that's exactly where they're going to go. Yeah. I don't know though. You know, I think they're going to they're going to do more of a leverage of Game of Thrones. You know, we're going to see Gondor, we're going to see Ro- Rohan, you know. It may be Aragorn centric, but surely it's going to be that kind of, you know, epic style stuff, right? Battles and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, so um Doggledur. Yeah, and, but but see, and but the thing is, I I wouldn't care exactly. Like, that is to say, if we find out, if we start it, you know. So say we start in 2018, you know, going with our production, you know. So after season three, we shift and do and start doing the the pre order the ring stuff, uh, leading up through into the Lord of the Rings to kind of stay, try to stay like a you know ahead, a year ahead or whatever. Uh, of the Amazon show. Um, if we do that, then, uh, and they go in a completely different direction, that's fine. Actually, that's just kind of interesting, in fact. Like, that'd be fun to talk about. Like, you know, what 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 is the, what, what storylines have they chosen? You know, what starting point did they choose? And, right. you know, I think it's, right. I think it's fine. Um, so I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm I'm not worried about actually trying to match it because again the point is not to do what they do the point exactly the point. Uh, I mean, some people are suggesting that we wait until we get a little bit more of an indication from them about where they're yeah, going to start. Think we need to. No, in fact, I would actively want to not do that. I, I, I would want to start with as little information to make our decisions prior to learning any of that. I, I, the whole Because the whole point is to do it as unbiasedly as... Because it's our last chance to do this unbiasedly. Um, so, uh, so yes, Mythalia says, I think it would be ideal if they go in a different direction than we do. Yeah, me too. I yeah. think it would be it would be interesting and fun to talk about. And, and uh, uh, so, but my thought is, uh, it, uh, Zach asks a great question. Since we don't know precisely where they'll start, if we jump forward, where do we jump to? It is true, Zach, that we risk, if we, for instance, start much earlier chronologically than they do, that we might not stay very far ahead of them, right? If we, if we start in advance, but then they, they jump in further downstream, uh, you know, our chronological advantage is lost. So that to me is the only risk that I can see. But, um, uh, anyway, I, so yeah. And, and it's so bombs. We just go back to the first stage. So it's a win-win for us. Yeah. I mean, we can always do that and then come back later on. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. So as I say, it's, I'm not saying that I have like totally decided that this is definitely what, what we want to do. And if there's a, 
you know, an absolute uprising about this and a refusal to, you know, to leave the Silmarillion stuff behind uh, for now and come back to it later, which is what we'd have to do. Uh, you know, maybe we can make other arrangements or, or so. I'm just this. I'm, I'm brainstorming here. All I'm doing is brainstorming in response to all the 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 the, the requests and and questions that I've been getting. Um. So, uh, I. I mean, the other thing that we'll be doing probably anyway, and this is something that I was thinking even before we maybe move on. If we even if we move decide to move on to doing what you're suggesting yeah. is I could see us. I mean, the thing with the film film project is we don't, you know, we don't have any particular deadlines. You know, we can, we can have an, a special show in between Silmarillion shows. If news comes out that we want to talk about, right? Exactly. So yeah. Not, no, know, that's not having like a, we can still continue with what we're doing now, but if say some big announcement comes out and more details come out, we can do a show. Yeah. And I would think that we could do that even with, you know, so say we either way, Basically, you know, if we continue with, you know, season four of the Silmarillion or if we do jump ahead and start doing our own thing, um, uh, I think that uh, we could still do the same thing. You know, we could do uh, we could do uh, since we're scheduled every other week, um, you know, we have that week in between if we need an emergency session to, you know, if they release something, you know, uh, then that that we, that we want to talk about, um, we can hold a session on that. Also, for the listeners, um, I think it's obvious that we need a form specifically to this new show. I think it's early to do that at this point, but I will certainly add a forum to the discussion board. Mm-hmm. And if if I haven't yet done it and you're, like, dying to talk because some news has come out, just ping me and I'll make sure I do it. But the plan is definitely to add a forum yeah. in the Simple Project uh, discussion board so we can talk about this particular series. Yeah. Because, well, I mean... <sighs> that's the other reason that it strikes me as a really attractive idea, not just for like my own sake, because I really want to talk and think this through before the show comes out. Um, but also because I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be interested to do this. So even if just from the point of view of like recruiting more people to take part in our film film fun, you know, I think that, uh, doing the part that's relevant to the thing that everybody's going to be thinking and talking about seems like a sensible sort of approach well and you know speaking as a business person when you were talking about you know us jumping and doing this new thing my first thought was that's likely to attract new people who don't know about the sound film project and i'm sure all of us would love to have more people in the sandbox and then we could go back to season four with exactly with more uh, you know yeah a a greater infusion of enthusiasm and energy and yeah i think it would be it would it would be it was would delay it you know we wouldn't get a valerian in its realms for several more years which would be a sacrifice but um uh but yeah um so oh and someone asked tim i think was asking earlier uh, what would happen? Yes, Tim. This is all on the assumption that I don't end up consulting with. It. If I again, if I do end up consulting with Amazon, I'm not going to be able to do this. Obviously, um, you know, I can't go. I, I couldn't. You know, but so. But again, worst case scenario, right? The worst case scenario, if uh, uh, if I'm uh, if I'm doing that, is we just keep we just go on to season four of the Silmarillion. I mean, there's no reason I can't do that. Uh, even if I'm, uh, even if I'm talking about, even if I'm, you know, working with the Amazon folks in some capacity. So, um, 
I think that that's no problem. And uh, Nick, yes, Nick was asking what season do we call it? That's a really great question because you can't really guess exactly what number it would be. So yeah, Nick, I'm thinking season A. I think we'll have to go yeah. with alphabet letters. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we call it season A and then we just give it a number when we get there, when we come back and get to it. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. So I don't, you know, I, I, yeah, Karita, exactly. Karita saying, let's not, let's not count our Balrogs before they hatch. I agree. I'm not planning. As you can tell from my from this planning conversation, I'm not planning on that. But people are asking, and that's my answer, you know, is that, yeah, then I wouldn't be able to do this. But we figure something else out. And, uh, um, and Tony, I would love for Mythgard to offer another podcast on just the Amazon show. Uh, and I would very much welcome other hosts. So let's, I, I will take you up on your offer, Tony. Uh, I would love to have some more people involved in this, uh, in this discussion. So, uh, that would be, that would be really excellent. So let's see what we think about this. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in feedback on this question. Uh, if, uh, if people would be, would be willing to, would be interested in jumping forward, um, when season three is done and, uh, uh, and starting, uh, starting, I, I, I'm thinking, well, of course the starting point will be the first thing we will have to discuss when we, when we, when we get there. But, um, but I think, I think it would be a really sensible thing to do in the circumstances and a, a great way to be a part of this, uh, pretty exciting moment. So, Anyway, just wanted to float the idea past people, see what you thought, uh, and uh, because again, you guys, the film film audience, you know, you guys are the greatest authority on this whole question of you know serial adaptations. So, uh, you know, I definitely wanted to talk about this with you guys in detail before uh, before I you know we made any decisions or uh, or move forward with anything. So, all right, but. Uh, all that aside, let's continue on with season three. You guys ready to talk about season three now? Back to back to episode six. You bet. Okay. So you may remember last time hey, I. You sit here, blink twice if yes, and once if no. <laughs> I'm still on. Oh, good. Okay. Dave, what do you think about uh, the 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 idea of uh, jumping ahead and doing uh, doing our own version of the show in anticipation? Um, it seems like the best option. Um, there, I have mixed feelings about it, but um, but I think there's I think there's going to be demand for us to do something. And yeah. I think if we're going to, um, I, I think I think our two options are either what's been proposed mm-hmm. or a very very sporadic reaction show where right. we don't do speculation. Right. I think if if we're going to do speculation. Um, then I think this is the right the right way to do it to do it in the forum of Silmarillion Film Project. Like I right. I, I appreciate and admire the offers um, from people to, uh, to to do a spinoff podcast to a separate one, but um, but I mean the reality is we already plan to cover this stuff right. on Silmarillion exactly. Film Project. So I think this is the right way to do it. I think either either we do it this way, <clears throat> or if people don't want to skip ahead. Then, um, then we just say we're not going to do a speculation podcast. We'll just do reaction to news whenever it comes out. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's and then we can you know figure out what we do when it actually comes out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Um, yeah, that's good. That's that's uh, 
That's what I'm thinking too. All right, well, let's move on to uh, to episode six. So you may remember last time, which I hope you do because I barely do. Um, we talked about episode five. It was like three weeks ago, which seems like forever in the distant, misty past. Um, uh, we were talking about uh, Menegroth, and that we we talked a lot about the petty dwarves. We made some decisions there. We made some decisions that we're going to save meme and the eviction of meme. Uh, the problem, the biggest, pro- one of the biggest, well, at least the biggest problem that I was having uh, was geographical, uh, in fact. Uh, back to our map here. With Menegroth right here in the smack middle of Doriath, we were trying, I was trying to figure out how could the petty dwarves live there and not have been already noticed and encountered independently by the elves, even though the elves aren't living in Menegroth. And although, you know, we were speculating about the possibility of underground tunnels so that they went, they got there and, and were, and, and never came above ground. We're talking about underground tunnel systems, hundreds of miles long, and it just seems kind of implausible. Uh, So we settled instead on the idea that the caves of the caverns of Menegroth are uh, are sort of discovered and revealed to them uh, uh, by the dwarves and the dwarves, uh, 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 you know, really love. So we we were going to do like a parallel to the uh, with the 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 dwarves of Belagost in particular. Uh, sort of a parallel with Gimli's reaction to the Glittering Caves, how they just sort of fall in love with Menegroth and, and like ask for permission to help them uh, to uh, uh, to sculpt and shape them, and and you know Thingol and Melian see the the defensive advantage of having this as as an underground fortress, and so they proceed uh, with Menegroth from there. So we still get lots of cooperation from the dwarves, and we save the petty dwarves. We decided to push uh, uh, the whole. Um, like the meme issue, the 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 petty dwarves getting kicked out of their homelands, uh, we're gonna we're gonna turf that to Nargothrond, basically, um, which of course is specifically mentioned in the text as as a, as a little bonus, right, as being a place that the petty dwarves had previously claimed uh, and uh, had been in some way evicted from. So. Uh, so we're going to do that, but that'll be a season four issue um, when uh, when Finrod settles in Nargothrond. Uh, so that'll be uh, so that'll be fine. Um, and we had um, uh, Bulldog and the orcs getting ready to come south. We had the spiders coming up into position. Uh, we decided that the spiders were going to be living over here. Right in the uh, northern reaches of the arid luin, so they hadn't met the dwarf. You know, the dwarves hadn't really met them. Uh, Sauron can go and travel to visit them, and they're not in Nand on Gortheb yet again because the elves are going to be surprised by them. Right, the elves don't know them yet. Um, they're going to eventually settle down in Nand on Gortheb after the Doria thing, which to me makes a great deal of sense geographically. Um, and yes, Nick, that Sauron flies, he does not bunny sled across. We talked about uh, uh, crossing geography, and since Sauron can shape change, uh, we have textual uh, uh, evidence that he can turn himself into a vampire bat. We were having him and Thorin Gwethil flying uh, together, uh, uh, presumably in giant bat shape uh, over Lothlon there to the mountains to meet with Shelob and spiders. Um uh, Nick, anything other, anything else big from episode five that I'm forgetting? Am I, uh, th- those are the main points of our discussion from last time that I'm recalling. I feel the need to summarize because it's been so long, and I don't know, you guys probably have a better memory than I do, but um, 
yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, Nick is pointing out his flight path would take him uh, almost over Gondolin. Uh, yeah, we'd have to avoid that. Because uh, maybe... Maybe, Nick, we could even integrate into that some kind of reference, some you know, in a scene with Sauron and Thor and Grethel, um, some kind of um, uh, sort of caution or leeriness or whatever about the eagles, right? Because the, the primary reason that Gondolin is never discovered uh, until the end is that the eagles uh, 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 uh roost there, you know, in the uh, roost, I don't think is quite the right verb for eagles, but anyway, they, they make their nest, they're not chickens, they make their nest, um, uh, their nests in the, in the mountains above Gondolin, so I would think that, uh, uh, that Sauron and Thuringuethel would be, uh, in bat form, plenty leery of, uh, Thorondor, and would give those mountains a fairly wide berth, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, so yeah. And so, so, Nick, I agree. This gives us an excuse to to establish that really early, uh, so that we can have we can we, we can associate the eagles with those mountains uh, uh, from the from the beginning. Um, that would be a major no fly zone. Not that there are very many of Morgoth's people that fly, but uh, uh, but anyway, that would be one. Um, yeah, David, we could even go to the extremity of giving them a brief encounter or a near encounter with uh, with Thorondor, um, so that we can clearly establish the establish the pecking order there. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, all right. Um, uh, <laughs> I see that I see that Dave is uh, uh, D- Dave is able to live tweet the show at least, even though he he can't verbally contribute <laughs> that much. So that's good. My phone over here is going off with uh, Dave's Twitter notifications as 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 usual. Uh, that's great. Um, oh, interesting. Hakan says uh, uh, that they discussed having Luthien dance to inaugurate the halls of Menegroth as a, as a way to show her power uh, and as a contrast to the upcoming war. That would be really neat. Hakan, were you thinking yeah. of doing that at the end of uh, of episode five, or uh, something? Or, you know, having that be like maybe the, you know n- near the opening of episode six. Um, uh, but yeah, I I like that idea. Establishing Luthien. Um, uh, and and the the fact that she's not just a pretty face uh, early, I think, would be would be a pretty good thing in this one, Hakan. Yeah, I think that's that's a great idea. I think it would go well here. So okay, all right. So that's the stuff that we talked about last time. Now this time, uh, so starting with the Angband storyline. So the host of, host of Bulldog enters East Beleriand, causing great consternation of the elves. Those who are nearby flee or die. So entering East Beleriand, we're talking, of course, again, and I just this I just love having the map as our opening scene here. This makes this is so handy. Um, of course, uh, over here in Osirian is where the Green Elves are going to settle, um, and Amon Ereb down here, just below the R. Uh, is, as I recall, the hill upon which Denethor is supposed to die. That's extremely far south. Um, but, um, anyway, so we can, uh, uh, they're going to be around here. One th- so, 
but that's not going to happen for several episodes. So we don't want to we don't want to uh, let the uh, the orcs get too far south. So the the issues here, as we think about the incursions, um, I was saying before that I would, for simplicity's sake, I would kind of like to keep um, and to kind of keep our theaters of 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 action. Uh, uh, sort of clean a little bit. Um, I would like to keep the the Sindar sort of mostly south of the the line of mountains here. Um, not have many of them living up in Dorthonian or or in Hithlum and or in Mithrim. We're going to have some in Nevrast eventually, of course, because uh, that's going to be a thing with Turgon. But we don't. We're not going to get to that this season. Um, anyway, so the the Sindar are mostly you know around here in uh, in 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 the sort of the main body of Beleriand here. So if Bulldog and the Orcs are coming in, I'm thinking Bulldog and the Orcs are going to come in here through the uh, the March of Mithros, or what will later on be the March of Mithros, but of course Mithros isn't there yet. Um, and if they're coming through here, we have a couple th- places to which this is obviously relevant, right? One of, uh, one of course, is uh, the, the dwarves. So we get, you know, the dwarves are, the dwarves are over here, um, and uh, so th- we're, we're, we're getting into their terrain over here in Thargelion, which is going to be the land of Caranthir uh, later on. Um, this, is a, this, is, this is like the primary place, th- you know, avenue through which the dwarves come into Beleriand. So if the orcs are over here, that's A, going to interfere with communication between Doriath and the dwarves, and it's going to, like, come to the dwarves' attention, right? It's going to become a major issue for the dwarves, and so something for them, and therefore for us to think about. The other thing, obviously, is Nan Elmoth here. We've talked about Nan Elmoth as we need to set this up as Aeol's domain, and we want to do the scene where he trades, you know, the sword for uh, the right to live there, and to kind of claim Nan Elmoth as his own. Um... It seems like we have an interesting sort of opportunity or challenge, perhaps, because of course Nan Elmoth is smack in the path of the orc host. Um, does he escape them? And if he escapes them, how does he escape them? I think that that's uh, going to be um, going to be a, a, a little. Um, uh, I'm not sure what to do with. Aeol and the orcs. So that's just kind of an interesting thing. So I don't know where they're going to be and what the orcs are going to be doing. Harassing, apparently. So they're going to be some wandering elves around here, you know, in Himlad and uh, maybe Thargelion. Um, but we're not going to have any uh, any major military action yet. Um and Hakan, I agree, the Sindar should be gathering in Menegroth. Not, you know, maybe not quite yet. They've begun to, um, but really, when Bulldog and the army, uh, you know, his uh, his his army come down into this, is when they're going to start retreating in earnest. Uh, I would, uh, uh, I would say. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, Hakan, I'm thinking too. The logical thing. Uh, Nana Elmoth, of course, is going to become... He's going to do his own sort of... It's not exactly like the Girdle of Melian, but he's going to do his own thing, right? Um, with, um, uh, you know, like the sort of... Uh, uh, Nick, to follow your suggestion there, this sort of uh, confustication field that he's going to have working there, you know, in Nan Elmoth... 
through which he's going to uh, ensnare Arathel later on. Um, so we could have him put that in place, right? But there are two issues there. One is, we don't want to have that happen before the girdle goes up, do we? Do we want to have him... So, first of all, is he there yet? When are we doing the exchange? Do we do that in this episode? Maybe? Do we put that in now with Ale? Secondly, um, uh, I think... Uh, I, I would... Um, I would... I would really rather, in a lot of ways, I would rather have him do his thing after Melian does hers. I would like him, what he does in then Elmoth to be like an imitation of uh, what what Melian does in Doriath. Um, which means he can't be setting up now. Um, Nick, I agree. It has to be after the dwarves start arming the elves. What if we save the trade until later on? his position would be rather stronger if Nan Elmoth has been completely abandoned, right? Nobody lives there at all because of the orc. The orc invasion gives us a good excuse to have everybody leave it. Um, and so when Ael approaches later on, uh, or he's not going to approach and ask permission first. He's going to set up there, right? And then, and then the negotiations will begin um, when Thingol comes and says, dude, what are you doing? Um... So yeah, I think he's gonna. I, I think maybe we need to push that back later on, so we can just have it uh, have Nanelmoth be abandoned, essentially. Uh, that make that makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Good. Several of you are agreeing with the idea of him being more in imitation of Melian, certainly than in, in. The last thing we want is to make it look like Melian is following Ail's lead. That that becomes, I think, super awkward, and we don't want to go there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Nick is even suggesting the possibility that he could actually uh, um, uh, be sort of utilizing or repurposing some of Melian's own magic, which might linger in Nan Elmoth. Um, yeah, possibly so. Um, but yeah, I, th- I definitely think that we want to make it uh, at least an imitation at least sort of conceptually derivative uh, from Melian's idea, if not even, you know, Nick, as you're suggesting, in some way literally derivative um, uh, of uh, Melian's power. So, okay, yeah, so so let's, so let's just, so let's forget Nan Elmoth, or rather just have it be abandoned like everything else there. Um, uh, okay, cool. Anyway, back to my other slide. So, so we had the orcs coming down, Bulldog leading the orcs sort of methodically down and routing out people and everyone's fleeing. So now, a question from the discussion board. What is Morgoth up to anyway? Does he just sit on his throne in brood, sending off evil vibes into Middle-earth? How do we b- depict the putting down roots that makes all of Middle-earth into Morgoth's ring? What a great question that is. Um, and it's connected with the other question that I was asking a couple months ago, which is, how do we want to handle, in what way could we depict, how can we convey the concept of Morgoth distributing his power amongst his servants and therefore reducing his own power uh, thereby? Um, we do... 
I think it would be great to sh- if there were some way that we could show this that like what Morgoth is doing is like establishing himself, like establishing his connection uh, to Middle Earth, claiming it as his own and binding it to himself. Uh, but that is a real challenge to think about how to convey that um, verbally or visually. Not necessarily verbally, though possibly verbally, actually. Wow. One way that we could do this would be to have... We could do it in conversation. We could actually just, like, kind of have some exposition about this. Um, It seems like a little bit of a cop-out, but a little bit of exposition doesn't do anybody any harm, right? Um... <clears throat> what if we had, like, a conversation between Sauron and Thorin Gwethel, for instance? Or, you know, Sauron and several of his, um, uh, se- several of his captains. I me- mentioned Thorin Gwethel because, uh, she's the most intelligent, but, um, <clears throat> what if, what if she is asking that question, basically? So Sauron is talking about his plans for his campaign in the South. Right, and they talk about what uh, Gothmog is up to, which is a whole lot of sitting around and waiting for somebody to attack in the north. Right, and somebody, uh, maybe it's Thorin Gwethel, maybe it's Tivildo, maybe it's Draugluin, asks the question. So, what's Melkor doing? <clears throat> I mean, is he going to lead an attack? Is he like, what's he up to uh, exactly? And Sauron could explain that he is undertaking a great work, um, uh, but a great work that is to him alone, you know, and that he is, uh, you know, and, and, and he could just say, it doesn't have to explain it in a lot of detail, but he could, he could, uh, talk about how he is like, you know, making his claim to middle earth, uh, uh, you know, like unalienable or whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that 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 we could uh, we could just we could mention the concept now, and that would give us an opportunity to sort of show manifestations of that, which then we would be giving people a context in which to 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 interpret it, right? Uh, so, for instance, we can show some changes, uh, showing how Thangorodrim is changing. Right, um, and the area around it. Um, remember how we're going to get a, a progressive development of that over time, right? Ardgalan is going to become Dornufauglith, right? The 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 gasping dust, right? So the the beautiful plain uh, south of the mountains is going to get destroyed in the Battle of Sudden Flames and never be the same again. Dorthonian, right, is going to become corrupted, and so you know, like the, the forest up there is going to become, you know, the proto Mirkwood. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot of possibilities there to, or there's a lot of ways in which, I mean, just think about how, back to my handy map, um, there's a lot of ways in which, uh, you know, we, we, we can see from, uh, from the corruption of Ardgalan, the corruption of, from Darthonian to Tower Nufuin, Erid Gorgoroth, um, you know, all of this stuff is one way of sort of showing 
the land coming under the power of Morgoth. And if we can kind of, and obviously there's more to it, the whole binding of Middle Earth to himself. It's more than just that, but having provided that concept, when we show ways in which the land itself is becoming like enslaved to him in some way, you know, we can, we can, we can kind of work with that. Um, so, uh, yeah. And Tony, I agree. Morgoth should also physically change. Um, we can, we can, that's another way in which we can show his, uh, um, his depletion of his own power. Um, ah, Tony's suggesting that he, he could become more necrotic and decayed over time. Um, I would want to save that for maybe the very end, but I could see him becoming more gaunt, right? Um, more sort of thin and frail. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, th- though, I mean, I do like the idea of him looking sort of progressively more like a corpse as the seasons go by, Tony, I, as, as a concept. I think that that, that, that works. Um, yeah. Uh, now, David, I agree. We, we don't want to see Morgoth's diminishment outwardly manifesting yet. I, I'm, I'm thinking like long term, big picture. Um, you know, between now and the the uh, the War of Wrath kind of deal, uh, but something that we can see. Um, anyway, cool. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't think we need to you know, go dig deep into the special effects budget in order to depict the relationship between Morgoth and the land. Um, but I think that just talking about it at first is probably a good way to broach the subject because I don't think there's any way that we can convey the, cause it's an abstract concept. I mean, it's not just something that's visible. Um, it's something that really only can be, uh, imagined, uh, and thereby discussed. So, um, yeah, Hakan, I agree. I think it would be interesting to say... Uh, Hakan is saying it should be part of the reason to destroy Beleriand. Now, like, it's not that the host of the West set out to destroy Beleriand, um, but it could be... That, I, I, you know, that sense of sort of cleansing, I think, is, is something that we can work into uh, the War of Wrath sequence. You know, that on the one hand... The drowning of Beleriand is itself a kind of tragedy, but on the other hand, it's kind of a good thing in its way, right? It's a, it's it's also sort of a cleansing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Gothmog's army of orcs is established near the coast. Uh, prepared to defend against an incursion from Valinor. The Balrogs are not very patient with the unruly orcs who live in terror of them. I agree, and we don't need to be there very much, but we do want to establish that. I mean, they should be up, uh, uh, up here by the Firth so that they can be nearby when Feanor attacks. Um, yeah, when Feanor, because Feanor is going to land here <clears throat> by the Firth of Drengist uh, as well. So we're going to want to have them nearby. 
they're not right on the coast because Feyenoord doesn't want to see them as he's landing, right? But he's going to encounter them not too long after that. Um, uh, so yeah, up here in the in the you know, so I'm thinking because the the uh, Helcarax is up that way, right? So if they're anticipating like you know Tolkas and Orome coming across the Helcaraxa and and down um they're going to be they're not going to be lo- really guarding the coast anyway so if the orcs and uh uh and and Gothmog are say up here just north of Lamoth um then you know to 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 inter- ready to intercept or attack anybody who comes down from the north then it's easy enough for Feanor to have his initial battle with them here um uh, and then, you know, move on in as we go into Mithrim and stuff. Um, yeah, exactly, Nick. They would see the burning ships, and the burning ships would give them away, and, and they would come down to engage. That makes all kinds of sense. Um, okay. Uh, Sauron leads the wolves and possibly vampires to Thorin Gretho have followers out of Angband, headed southwest towards the coast. He is clearly acting independently and planning his campaign without input from Melkor. I love this idea, you know, that he wants to hand... I think that he will... Morgoth would be fine giving him a fairly free hand here. I think that... uh, um, you know, Melkor's not stupid. Like he knows that Sauron is the, the 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 much cleverer and more resourceful than Gothmog. So, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's an interesting idea, Nick. Uh, that part of the part of the point of taking out the Falathrim first uh, is to take control of the harbors to prevent a sea landing. So, um. That's something that Sauron could have initiated, right? That they're thinking, like, okay, if somebody's coming over from Valinor, they're coming over in one of two ways, right? Either they're gonna they're gonna sail across, or they're going to, uh, or they're gonna march across the Helcaraxa. You know, the Valar are gonna march across the Helcaraxa. Uh, so Gothmog is up here guarding against that. Sauron wants to take out the Havens because the Havens over here uh, on the west coast are the the most likely place that ships would land. So. Uh, that makes a good deal of sense and would explain why he attacks there first. Uh, so I like that idea. Um, so he, so Gothmog coming down here through the March of Mithros, Sauron uh, and Draugluin leading the werewolves down through uh, Tolsirion, right through, through the Pass of Sirion here, uh, coming along to the west of Doriath, through the what will be the realm of Nargothron, but where there are very few people uh, now, and straight out towards the Phalas with very little, um, you know, uh, very little to get in their way uh, between one point and the other there. Um, what do you guys think about the question about uh, vampires? Should Thorin Gwethel have a, a vampire squad? Or should she be just kind of on her own? I guess I'd always pictured her as being on her own. Um, I mean, I'd always pictured Draugluin as the head of, or the, you know, the father, he's the father of werewolves, right? So he has children. He's, you know, he has a brood. Um, so there are bunches of werewolves. Um, there would be, obviously, bunches of orcs. What about Tevildo as well? So we have Tevildo and um, Thorin Gwethel. Do we imagine... Do we do we want? To, I, I'm thinking. See, Hakan Hakan likes the idea of it. 
I can't imagine, Nick, I'm thinking the same thing. We can't have like an army of vampires. I'm smelling, I'm smelling spinoff here. <laughs> we could have a spinoff show, right? <laughs> That's just what we need. The, the family of the bad guy. The families of the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Mike, you're right. Morgoth doesn't have an Air Force, uh, so we don't want to give him an entire Air Force of vampire bats. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Thorin Gwethel has to be alone, either. Um, yeah, so uh, a squad. Yeah. And that's actually kind of Well, the neat. other thing is, I mean, couldn't Theron Gwessel sort of start out with some, you know, flying abilities, but then they get basically offed early in a battle? Right, right. Well, the the, the cool thing that I was thinking is that um, we get uh, we get an anticipation of the Nazgul, right? So just thinking proportionally, right, of like the large land army with the few but significant flying creatures above it. Um I kind of like that the parallelism there. So if we had maybe a dozen or something vampires with Thorin Gwetho at their head, um, they would play a very significant role um, in uh, in helping to take the city. But they wouldn't be, you know, the core of the army or anything. Um, and yes, Nick, you're absolutely right. If these, if if the flying that they do is in the shape of bats there is zero chance that they can compete with the eagles. I mean, eagles are going to absolutely destroy giant bats in the air. Um, Not to mention the fact, as you point out, Nick, the bats don't fly very high, so we're not going to get giant bats, you know, soaring up at eagle altitudes. Um, So, yeah, there's there's no question of the eagles being able to go. So, in in a sense, we're not... (laughs) Okay, we're kind of allowing Morgoth to have a very small air force, but it's not a very effectual air force, right? You know, it certainly cannot compete with the Eagles. Um, so, and, and think about this as well. A, a couple people were referring earlier on to the, the fell beasts, right? The Nazgul steeds. And are we going to have any kind of anticipation of them to which my answer is no, that's Sauron's answer, remember. I, I think what we need to do is sow the seeds of that now, right? Um, so Thurin Gwethel and her followers are going to be killed, uh, uh, I, I think should be killed mostly by the eagles. Um, and Sauron is going to remember that, right? So I think he's going to be developing, just as Morgoth develops Karkaroth, right? For And, and, and obviously, uh, you know... Uh, Glaurung and the dragons and stuff for for particular purposes. Uh, Sauron is going to develop the fell beasts that uh, are the steed serve as the steeds of the Nazgul, um, remembering the eagles, right, and having uh, uh, trying to breed up creatures uh, that would enable uh, his followers to, you know, be operating on the same level in a sense uh, that the eagles were, which Morgoth himself didn't have. Um. Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, no, see, exactly, Mike. This, this, I think, this, this easily prevents us having to do backflips to keep Gondolin a secret, right? Against the eagles, right? Um, we just, show, like, the sky over Gondolin is thick with eagles. They don't dare go anywhere near it. And again, if we, even if we just kind of, you know, uh, uh, tease that, um, in uh, uh, in in the in the last episode, in episode five, when they're flying over to visit the spiders, to make sure that they give those mountains a wide berth, knowing they can't go anywhere near that because of all the eagles there, um, that sort of establishes um, establishes that. So, yep, yep. Um, I think that should be that should be very sensible. The eagles are just, they are, nobody can compete with them. No one in, in, in Sauron's army can compete with the eagles in the sky until we get the winged dragons. That's why the winged dragons are a really big deal um, at the end. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so we're getting, we're not actually getting the destruction of the Fallas in this episode, are we? Or are we? No, we're not. That's happening in the next episode. So we're, we're having him set out to, so we know what he's doing, we know what his objective is. And so we're going to see him running with, oh, do we want a cat army too? Do it, does Tevildo get anybody? Um, of course. Yeah. Uh, what role do they play? So if Thurin Gwethel and her, uh, you know, vampire squad are basically, um, they would be primarily, you know, spies and, uh, you know, they would like take out, you know, archers on the tops of towers and things like that. Um, what would Tavildo and his cats do? What, what, what would their role be? Would they run with Draugluin and the, and the, and the, the wolves? I think they'd be like ambushers or or snipers. I mean, snipers yeah. are ranged, so that doesn't really work. But you know, yeah. what I mean, it's like yeah, they pick they pick pick off fringe, you know, individuals on the fringes and stuff. You know, yeah, like, yeah, more like assassins, Nick. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, assassins. Y- yes, y- that would be the idea of an army of cats marching to advance is ridiculous, right? I mean, that's, that's, you couldn't hurt them. I mean, it would be impossible. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, yeah, they would be like infiltration. And so under what, do we have an opportunity when we can deploy them? Well, we're going to get opportunities later on. For instance, um, remember that uh, Sauron is going to is going to back to my map. Sauron is going to take the island of Tolsirian, right? Um, you know, Minas Tirith as was, and he's going to you know make it into his place, the place that Luthien is going to take down later on. Um, so, Tevildo and the cats can be heavily involved in that process I could easily see um, but would he have a task for them I'm just thinking about Sauron's strategy here right he has Bulldog and the Orcs marching through the open territory here and uh, 
uh, killing as many elves as they can and coming through and attacking Doriath ideally. Um, he is taking his werewolves because they're really fast, right? You know, an, an army of wolves would be very swift moving, right? So he's going to uh, he's gonna do this lightning assault with his army of werewolves down to the Phalas and take the Phalas supported by Thurin Grethel and her squad of vampire bats. He's going to have, he has already recruited Shelob and the other offspring of Ungoliant to come in and be his ace in the hole for uh, Doriath infiltration and destruction of the elves in Doriath. Because, like giant spiders in the forest, uh, they're going to be able to, you know, so that no one will see that coming. So that's his, that's his, his, uh, his ace in the hole, as I say. But what about. The cats. What about Tevildo? What should he? Uh, what should he be doing? Mike, I agree. Sauron does have to be feeling pretty good about now. I mean, this is a pretty good strategy, right? He's got he, he's got a good team. He's got uh, a, a very diverse uh, uh, you know armament at his uh, command here. Um, he's engulfing Doriath in this like huge pincer movement, right? Um, this is, uh, this is, this is pretty good. Um, Hakon, Tevilda could take care of communication, but you got to think the vampires would be the ones to do that, right? Because they can fly, right? So they're going to be faster than anything else. So if we're trying to communicate from one side of the continent to the next, he's got to send a vampire messenger across, Right. Besides which, cats I think would be unreliable messengers. Wouldn't Tevildo find that beneath his dignity? Um, yeah, I'm just thinking of where we can see. I mean, maybe we don't need them right now, but if we have Tevildo, we we need to give him a job, don't we? Um, I mean, other than torturing prisoners, which is one of his jobs. Uh, Hakan is suggesting he could be placed in the rear to guard a strategic spot just north of Doriath. Yeah. Though, stand here and faithfully guard this point also seems like a bad job to give a cat. Right? I mean, that's a dog's job, isn't it? You know, stand here and guard this thing. No cat's going to stand there and guard something. Right? <laughs> Hawkins says, see, they're useless. No, no, no. Like, giant evil hunting cats would be, absol- as somebody was suggesting earlier, absolutely terrifying, right? I mean, that, that, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's a very powerful weapon. It just has to be deployed properly, right? Um... Right. Utilizing them for stealth attacks on critical points, I agree, Nick. But do we have any of these? I'm just... The reason I'm bringing this up now is that it just kind of seems to me what we're doing in this episode is seeing Sauron put all of his pieces in motion, right? He's got a strategy laid out for how he's going to uh, uh, subdue Beleriand, and right now he's putting all of his pieces in motion. So I'm thinking we want to have a place for him to put, you know, those pieces in motion. I, I think we want to show off the breadth of Sauron's repertoire here, you know, of his, of his, uh, of his troops. 
So I'd like to show them off in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah, they could be in sort of smaller squads accompanying the the werewolf army so that we can see them acting um, yeah 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 Nick exactly they're sort of like they're the green Berets they're the the special forces um I can see that I can see that we could show them as uh, Zach uh, Zachary Coleman was just suggesting we could show them uh, sort of you know hunting down some of the free roaming elves in Beleriand, driving them into Doriath so that we could have uh, um, as we're showing orcs or you know like uh, elves fleeing from orcs and running towards Doriath we could show some of them being uh, being hunted and ambushed by roving bands of of giant evil cats. Um, that would certainly that 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 would certainly work. Um, we could have them in Doriath itself. Um, how kind of suggesting they they should try to find Menegroth? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sauron doesn't know where Thingol's base is, right? And since it's in the forest, that would not be a good job for the vampires because they can't find it by flying over, right? So yes, yes, that could be. Um, we could have some cats along with the, the, the werewolf army so that at the Phalas we could have some, um, you know, some green beret evil cat action, uh, if we choose to, um, but which is, which is great. I think that's fine. Um, personally, I'm thinking with the greatest use of, uh, like suit giant supernatural evil cats, uh, would just be like a siege or two. I mean, they could just jump up on the walls, right? Uh, and, you know, so, like, there you go. Like, your, 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 your defenses are no, um, are no, uh, uh, defense against something that can leap, like, you know, 30 feet. So, um, but anyway, yes, I really love that idea, uh, Hakan. They're so Tavildo's, Tavildo is charged with a job, and that's a kind of job that a cat would be good at, right? Um, hunt your prey down to its lair, right? Uh, find, infiltrate Doriath, uh, and find out where Thingol is based. Uh, and so they identify where Minagroth is, because they do, Sauron will need to know that, um, so that when he does. Uh, pull out his ace in the hole and send Sheila in after them. They know exactly where they're going, right? So I I like that. I, th- I think that, that really works. Um. Yeah. Good. Good. Um. Right. Okay. Cool. And they can, and we can have them hunting down elf parties, or we can show, you know, like hunters and 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 you know some of the Sindar that are in Doriath and you know patrolling or whatever. We can show a patrol ambushed by you know Tavildo and the cats, you know, so that this idea of like the the ter- you know there is some terror lurking in the forest, you know, can be uh, uh, can be certainly a thing going on. Um, yeah, cool. All right. Uh, that's good. Uh, that 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 solves the problem. That gives Sauron a, a much more complete uh, strategy. This is good. This is a good strategy for Sauron. I think he's doing. I think Sauron is doing a great job. Okay, very good. 
All right, so that's the Angman storyline. No problem. Now, the role of the Green Elves. What do the Green Elves do? What's going on with the Green Elves? So the Green Elves cross the mountains into Beleriand because the lands further east are troubled by evil creatures. Okay, I don't think we can have the lands be troubled by Sauron's creatures. Because if they're troubled by Sauron's creatures, then we have to have... We just worked out Sauron's strategy, right? So if he's also like, and I'm going to send some other things to randomly mix mix it up over on the other side of the mountains, uh, that's not very... I don't think that's... His focus is going to be on you know his, his achieving his objective, right? Which is Thingle and Million and taking out the elves of Beleriand, that's the goal. Um, he's not so going to... Ju- taking independent agents of evil? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, Nick, that my, I was just thinking along the same lines you were. Leftovers from the War of the Powers. I think that we get, you know, some like the, you know, the beasts of horn and ivory, basically. There was some of the, some of the beasts are still roaming around. Um, I'm also not sure... We can have... Because, see, here's my other problem. I don't know that we want to have the Green Elves motivated entirely by fear. Like, that they've come here as a refuge. It can come up, right? But... But I don't know that we want to make that the only or even the primary motivation. There are two problems here. Problem number one. They hang with the Ents, right? And I think that having a bunch of Ents around with you would be a pretty good um, evil creature, like, they would be a pretty good anti-evil creature uh, uh, defense, right? Um, Yeah. So merely like we were having no peace because we're constantly being terrified by evil creatures, like they could, um, they could, uh, you know, I mean, the Ents would be able to help. I, I don't know. It's just like having them running there terrified. Because if they are, then Treebeard has to be running with them terrified. You know, like, do we want to have Treebeard driven out of the east by evil creatures? I, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. Treebeard is going to be motivated, um, as uh, as our notes are going to go on to say later on. Treebeard is going to be motivated by exploring. He just wants to see more of the land and and meet more trees and stuff. Uh, so I would think that that would be the logical primary motivation of the green elves, just make them, yeah, Hakanjaya, just make them kind of nomadic. You know, they could be kind of nomadic. Um, we could have them bring memories. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they they can have had some bad times. I'm not saying that we have to, you know, make the, 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 the lands to the east of the mountains, you know, like the, a trouble-free paradise. Um, they can they can have had some run-ins with evil creatures and stuff and be hoping that on this side of the mountain things are more peaceful, right? Um, that's going to be kind of a theme, right? As, like, things come west seeking peace and finding that, you know, this is going to be the big issue with the men, right, later on. Um, so, uh, 
You're right, Nick. I'm not saying that Treebeard has to share the Green Elves' motivation exactly, but if they're traveling together, they are to some extent in the same boat, right? Um, so, I don't know. Anyway, um, I think that uh, they could be they could be driven... Yeah, so... Uh, 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 Nick is suggesting that they, it could be something like lack of available game. So the problem is not that they're running for their lives in fear lest they be hunt, hunted down and killed uh, uh, by the remaining evil beasts, but maybe the remaining evil beasts are, um, you know, are, are like slaughtering all the game and they're, you know, just looking to kind of get a, away from them and out of their range uh, so that they can have a, sort of a freer run of things. And when they cross the mountains, Assyrian looks like just the thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think that it, I think that it's it's okay for it to be positive. Now Tony's asking the question, why couldn't they just maybe they've heard about the return of Morgoth and want to help their kinsfolk. Maybe they're coming over in order to help. <clears throat> I'm not sure I'd want to go that far. I think it's okay for them to come over for positive reasons, like because they want to go there rather than because they're running away from something else. But I don't think that I want them... First of all, because I think the news is probably too recent for them to have heard it. Um, I can't imagine it's a whole lot of communication over the mountains other than through the dwarves, and I can't imagine they've heard it from the dwarves. So uh, I I think that the return of Morgoth would be news to them. But secondly... Um, I don't want them coming over like as a military relief force. That doesn't because you'd think they'd be a little better prepared if that were their case, right? Besides, I like the sort of tragic element of we have come to find a land of peace and plenty where we will not where we will escape the problems that we have had. And of course, they end up landed square into much deeper and more serious problems. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, good. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, Nick, exactly. We need to, because we, we can't forget the fact that we're setting up the green elves to get slaughtered by the orcs, right? Um, they're not just going to, they're not just going to like come in to join them and, and experience casualties in battle. Um, they're going to get plastered by Bulldog and the orcs. Um, so having them be unprepared for what is coming, I think is, is a, a thing that we want to, uh, we want to have. Um, okay. Um, yeah, Lydia, exactly. We do not want a replay of the Elvish army uh, in Jackson's Lord of the Rings. We don't want them showing up like uh, like how, like Jackson's Haldir at Helm's Deep. We don't want them showing up even uh, like uh, uh, Jackson's uh, Thranduil um, at the Battle of the Five Armies. Um, yeah, Hakan, they're just looking for peace. They're they're looking for peace now, Mike. That's an interesting point. Mike Hoxdod points out that they aren't Avari. You know that the desire to go west is maybe not completely extinguished. You know they they decided to settle down. They decided that their calling was to stay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that like that that you know being drawn towards the west is not uh, is not a factor for them. Uh, I think it's important to remember. Um, okay, so. This then leads to the second question, the the fate of Lenwe. Um, why is his son Denethor leading the people? No, I don't think, 
I think Lenway could be fine. I don't think we need to off Lenway. Um, especially if they are like one, if they are highly decentralized and nomadic peoples, um, you know, Lenway's son, Denethor could just be the one leading the group of elves that decided to go. I mean, the idea that the green elves are only a subset is a clearly established fact anyway. Um, many of the Nandor, like that's where the elves of Mirkwood and Lothlorien come from. Those, uh, elves, uh, who are ultimately the followers of Lenway who did not come over into Beleriand, uh, in the first age. So, um, I see no reason to think that Lenway isn't still living happily somewhere, uh, with, you know, maybe, maybe the storyline was there's Lenway and Denethor and the other Nandor over there hanging out with Treebeard and the Ents having a great time. And maybe it's Treebeard's initiative, right? Maybe Treebeard is like, I would like to cross the mountains and see more of this great land. And Lenway's like, nah, I'm good. I think I'm going to stick around. Uh, uh, but you go if you want. And Denethor is like, hey, Dad, can I go with him? That sounds like fun. And he's like, sure, kid. Why don't you go? Right? I mean, like that could be the that could be the kind of thing. I mean, it's it's fine. Um, it, I, I don't I don't think it need be a, a more radical region or reason than that. Now, Mike, you're right. We we would probably want to kill Lenway off before we get to the Third Age, right? But we'll have lots of opportunities for that. Uh, uh, because, yeah, we, we, we need to have a reason why, uh, you know, why Galadriel and Celeborn and Thranduil are ruling instead of still Lenway, right? Um, but again, lots of opportunity for, for, for the death of Lenway. Uh, the death of Lenway could uh, come as a part of the uh, wars with Sauron in the Second Age. You know, Lenway could die uh, at the end of the First Age, like around about the War of Wrath. Uh, you know, all kinds of uh, all kinds of opportunities uh, for Lenway to die. So we don't have to we don't have to be in a hurry there. Um, Hakan, yeah, I don't see any reason why we can't come back to Lenway in the Second Age. He could still be there in the Second Age. Um, have him get killed by Sauron. Uh, 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 you know, again, round about the time of the forging of the rings of power. Why not? Why not? Um, so that'll be, that'll be fine. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so great. Okay. So, so Lenway is fine. Uh, but his son, his son, Denethor is just going and leading his people on a peaceful, uh, exploration. Uh, uh, you know, uh, bright-eyed and ready to see this great world with his friend Treebeard by his side, and uh, and everyone's happy, and they're gonna they're going on this great field trip, during which they're all gonna be not all of them, but you know, a huge portion of them are gonna be mercilessly slaughtered by Bulldog and the Orcs. Uh, so that'll be uh, delightfully tragic. Um, and Fimbrethil, yeah, about that. Do we want to have the ant wives traveling with them? The the ants. Do we have ant and ant wife traveling together? Yeah, I think at this point you do. We could. We could. How do we want to set up the ant and ant wife divide? Because. I, I mean, this could be a point in time when you could show the difference between them. Exactly. Right? That's what I'm wondering, right? Uh, because you know we. We know that the Entwives are going to be mostly into, like, fruit trees and agriculture, right? So they're going to be into orchards. They're going to be into, feel, you know, uh, 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 growing grain and stuff like that. Um, 
So I could imagine Treebeard saying, hey, I want to go and see more trees and explore, and Fimbrethil and the Entwives being like, Actually, we're good here. We're just, we, you know, we just made some, we just, you know, we, we, we got some orchards working, right? I just, I just, I just sowed barley in the further fields. Like, we're going to hang out and grow stuff. You have a good time, right? And I'm sure we'll meet up again later. And they do, right? The, the separation doesn't come yet. We're not, but, but just to sort of show, remember Treebeard's words, our hearts did not go on growing in the same way, right? Um, we can begin to show, um, the the um, the fact that their hearts are growing into different in different directions, right? So uh, this way, we don't have the ants involved in, or the ant wives rather. We don't have the ant wives involved in the events over in Beleriand. Maybe the ant wives never even go to Beleriand, right? Um, and uh, and we can. Um, We can come. We we can certainly come back to him in the second age. No reason we can't say uh, we can't do that. Um, doesn't okay. Hawkin is asking. Doesn't Treebeard say that they were together in Beleriand? Does he? He talks about them at a similar time. Hakon, that is, he talks about his memories of traveling in Beleriand, and he talks about remembering Fimbrethil. Like, he's nostalgic about both of those now lost things, <clears throat> but I can't remember. I might just not be coming up with it, Hakon, but I can't remember any specific reference to Fimbrethil in Beleriand itself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, Zachary, I agree. The Antwives don't seem like the, the exploring types. Um, I mean, again, that would be the other option, though. The other option, remember Treebeard's words, our hearts did not go on growing in the same way, right? Implying there was a point when their hearts were growing in the same way, right? So we could choose to show an earlier stage when both of them were hanging out and there weren't they, they weren't very different yet, uh, and their inclinations aren't very different. Um, and then later on show them going. But I kind of like setting the scene for it now. Um, you know, to have them separate non-permanently, right? And they're going to get back together and everything's going to be sort of okay. But again, we've sort of established the pattern. You can begin to see why this is going to, why this is going to happen later on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, It's not a crucial question, but it's an interesting question. Anyway, all right, so Treebeard probably without Fimbrethel and the Antwives, possibly with him if people insist, um, goes with Denethor. I'm liking, I'm, I'm liking this. 
Okay. Their society is more informal than the other cultures. Their leadership can be more... They, the Green Elves, of course, we're still talking about here. Their leaderships can be more about group consensus, uh, right? Like the Althing, uh, the, the, the Icelandic assembly. Um, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, they can be uh, not... They can be decentralized. They can... You know, Lenway is their leader, but, you know, he doesn't rule them, you know, necessarily. Um, uh, there can be... You know, they don't have to be completely nomadic, but they can just be, you know, they're just, you know, they, they wander where they want and whatever. It's all, um, yeah, green elf moots, Hakan. It'd be great, right? Um, I think that's, um, um, I think that's, uh, I think that's fine. That, that's, that seems to me right. Remember we had talked way back uh, when we were doing the Lenway episode in Season 2. We had talked about having the Green Elves use no metal of any kind, right? Because they would not be miners and they would not smelt things, right? They would, uh, you know, so having their uh, their clothing be all like leathers and skins and, uh, uh, and, and they would be using all wood and, um, you know, their arrowheads of, of chipped stone and things like that. You know, there's, there's, there's no reason for them not to, uh, uh, to, 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 they, they wouldn't need metal. Um, they can still be, you know, very elegant and and artistic because they're elves, and uh, and and you know, they can be they can be beautiful. They don't have to be crude. They don't have to be primitive. Um, they just wouldn't use metal. Um, uh, so I think that would be uh, uh, that would be fine. And as Zachary points out, it makes sense to have them not very centralized, as we're going to see them to be fine without a leader soon. Yeah, when Denethor dies, they're not going to take another king. Right, they're not going to have another leader until Baron shows up. So having them be culturally just kind of normally used to hanging out and doing their own thing um, makes makes sense. Um, yeah, good. Okay, excellent. Uh, so the dwarves who meet the green elves before they came to Beleriand dismiss them as savages because they're poor in material goods that the dwarves find valuable. Right, the dwarves. This is where I really like our earlier decision to have them use no metal because the dwarves would have very little patience for them. Right, like these thing, these uh, these primitive elves that just like sit around chipping flints and and uh, uh, and you know making leather. Like that's just not useful. Uh, and the dwarves would not be interested. Um, the dwarves would look down on them. Um, th- I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Good. Good. Um, okay. More about the ants. Maybe we already talked about some of this stuff, but Okay, so the ants are on nobody's side because no one is entirely on their side, right? But they're quite comfortable with the green elves and have a natural or instinctive dislike of dwarves. Um, You know what I'm wondering? That quotation, of course, the very famous quotation from Treebeard. You know what would be fun? It would be fun if Treebeard, when he says that to Marion Pippin, is actually remembering the green elves, right? Because the Green Elves of the First Age, what if the Green Elves from the First Age, what if Lenway and his followers were, that's like Treebeard's standard for being 
on their side. Like the Green Elves, Lenway and the Green Elves were on the side of the Ents. Nobody else has ever... And But since then, Lenway's gone. The Green Elves are... I mean, they're not totally gone. But this is why he looks really fondly on Legolas, right? Uh, and the Elves of Mirkwood, because the Elves of Mirkwood, not Legolas personally, actually, but the, 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 the Elves of Mirkwood are descended from... Uh, you know, there are you know still part of the people of of Lenway and the elves, but they've changed. You know, culturally they've changed, and and you know most of that first generation has died out. Um, you know, been killed off over the years, including of course Lenway. Um, so, so there's nobody sort of left who is entirely on their side. Um, but uh, and it, it, it would be kind of neat. Like again, it's one of those moments uh, where. Uh, it's one of those moments where uh, we deliver a line where, like, the benefit of the whole Silmarillion film project, right? When somebody delivers a very familiar line from the Lord of the Rings, it now sounds different. Like it, like we have this whole different set of associations, this whole different set of memories, right? Which again, the characters do have. Like we know that, like Treebeard is this, you know, wealth of millennia of memory, um, and that there's going to be lots of memories like that behind the things that he says. It's just that Merry and Pippin don't know them, and Merry and Pippin will still not know them, but the viewers will, right? Those who have been watching for you know twenty years at that point. Um, uh, will be able to remember this and to remember Treebeard and the Green Elves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. <laughs> Mike points out we only get, uh, like, three people who can uh, who can pull off those kinds of lines uh, in uh, in The Lord of the Rings, Treebeard, Celeborn, and Galadriel. Elrond can a little bit, right? Or, you know, by the time we get there, Elrond will have been around for a long time. But uh, uh, but you're right, Treebeard, Celeborn, and Galadriel are going to be the really long-running uh, folks. And that's that's cool, right? It's true, and that's the—and Círdan, right? Of course, Círdan the shipwright. Not that he ever delivers too many lines, but— uh, uh, but yeah, exactly. Um, oh yeah, good. Hakon was just talking about Kieran as well. Um, yeah, cool. Um, oh, and, and Tom Bombadil, Mike, absolutely can't forget Tom Bombadil. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, David, that's a really interesting idea. David Atlee was just suggesting that maybe we also have the Green Elves largely issue fire. Maybe they don't they don't use fire very much. Um, they, I wouldn't think they would have to avoid it entirely, but but if they yeah, but you're right, David. If they're if they're really close with the ants, if they're really on the ant side, they would probably not. Um, they would probably not be using fire very much, right? I mean, they're not going to collect wood to burn. Um, uh, I would think that, um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think that that could work, that could work well. Um, they're certainly not going to cut down trees for wood, right? They would never, they would never do that. Um, they could become entirely vegetarian over time, Nick, that I could see that happening with the green elves, with the green ants, with green elves for this reason, because of their friendship with the ants. Um, and even their friendship with the ant wives, right? As the ant wives increase their agricultural output, right? Uh, there, there's, I mean, there's, there's the wealth of the produce, you know, the fruits and the grains and everything from the ant wives. Why, you know, um, it would be even easier for them to, uh, 
uh, to issue fire at that point. Um, okay, we're good. We talked about the desire of the Ents to explore all of Beleriand. Do the Ents have the ability to lift the sleep of Yavanna in localized places? Okay, let's talk about the sleep of Yavanna. Because that's tricky. So, just to remind people what we're talking about here. After the destruction of the lamps, Yavanna goes around Middle-earth and she lays asleep upon growing things um, because they've been deprived of light, right? Uh, And she wants to preserve them against the time when light will be renewed. Uh, And uh, so she lays asleep on these things, which then come to life, most of them, uh, when the sun and moon rise. Which hasn't happened yet. I don't know. I'm... I'm not sure how we depict the sleep of Yvonne, really. I don't know. I have a hard time imagining what the green elves growing up in a world, you know, growing up as a culture, I mean, in a world in which the plants aren't alive and don't grow. I mean, they're alive, but they're like in stasis. How would they do that? How are Treebeard and the Ants going to get along? How are the Antwives going to grow gardens? So this idea of the Ents being able to uh, lift the sleep of Yavanna, that where the Ents go, things begin to flourish... But how do we jive this with Beleriand, with Doriath? You know, we we're, we're, we wanted, don't we not want to have, you know, fields of waving grass and trees, forests and things with plants growing in it and stuff out there? Um, I mean... Did the trees of Doriath have no leaves? It's just... I'm not sure that we can do it. I think we might have to depart from the... I think we might have to ditch the sleep of Yvonne, which is going to be hard to depict anyway. Um, I mean, we do get then the natural question of how do the trees and plants survive without the sun. Um, Yeah, Hakan, exactly. Beleriand would at least look totally dead. I mean, we can say, and we could have some kind of exposition to explain, that, like, no, everything looks dead, and we have all of these barren, dead-looking trees and, and fields that are just dirt with no grass growing on them and everything, you know... rolling plains as far as the eye can see, which are just, uh, you know, dirt with, like, rampant erosion, you know, uh, everything, you know, whatever. But it's not that it's dead. It's alive, it's just in, it's just dormant, right? And soon it's gonna, it's gonna bloom. I mean, yeah, we can say that, but the visual effect of half of season three is going to be we're living in a dead landscape. It's going to look like the bad guys have won already. Uh, I just, I don't... 
um, I don't know that we can be consistent with it. Now, maybe the solution is to do it and just be rampantly inconsistent with it. Um, But see, Nick, I don't know. The halfway point doesn't make any sense to me. If it's dormant, it's dormant. That is like no leaves. If it's a lie, if it has leaves but just never sheds its leaves or something, then it's it's not in a state of ungrowth. It's in a state of supergrowth, right? I mean, like if it's not going to renew its leaves every year, I mean, it, then what? Still, it's, it has leaves with no sun. How does it photosynthesize? I mean, that's, we're gonna we're not going to be able to escape that question. Um, I. Exactly, Margaret. It's going to look like it's always winter, but never Christmas. That is exactly what it's going to look like. Um, It's in a state of stasis. But see, but Nick, it's how do we do that? How do we make it frozen in a state of... I don't understand that. Like, I... That doesn't say sleep to me. Like if you've got a tree, if you've got an oak tree in full leaf, and it just what doesn't do what it just st- like it's not dormant. Then it's, in what sense is it in? This, is it sleeping? Um, to say it just never. It's like you know. So Margaret, it wouldn't be always winter, but never Christmas. In that case, it would be always summer and never autumn, right? But in what case? In what sense is always summer but never autumn dormancy? It's not dormancy. Right, so there's 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 no sense in which that's a sleep laid upon things. Um, I and, and, and no new growth. Well, okay, but again, always summer, but never autumn. Right, so okay, so that so like the acorns from the oak tree never fall. Oh, I mean, okay, but it, there's no way in which that looks like the only point of maintaining the sleep of Yavanna would be to have a dramatic change when the sun rises. So what's the dramatic change going to be? All the trees turn, uh, you know, orange and red and drop their leaves. I mean, that would be a change, but that would be anticlimactic. Um, I, I, I think it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure we can maintain it. I mean, I, I, if they're going to be dormant, I mean, if the sleep of Yavanna is going to be there, I think that they have to be dormant, like no leaves, like like trees are dormant in winter. Um, that is how I've always understood those passages, that like when when she lays the sleep of Yavanna on them, we're talking about trees with no leaves, like bulbs in the ground, ready to sprout again, but not sprouting until the sun comes. Um Uh, and so, yeah, as David is pointing out, how do, how do the how do the either the Sindar or the the Nandor um, eat if the tree if the plants never bring forth fruits at all because they're in stasis? Um, so, yeah, I don't. Uh, I honestly don't. I, and I just I just I just don't see how this can work. Um, we could make local exceptions. That is to say, we could have the influence of Melian in Doriath. So Doriath is itself 
sprung into bloom, right, because of Melian being there. I kind of like the idea of the Ents going around and not just waking up the trees in the sense of, like, making them into horns, but um, but waking up the trees from the sleep, right? So that where the where Treebeard has gone wandering, forests are, are springing up and whatever. I kind of like that. Um, <laughs> sorry. Halstein is completely right. Halstein says, if the plants don't grow, then all the plants are going to very quickly be eaten by the herbivores who will then starve to death. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, uh, that's not sustainable for any length of time. The only way in which it's sustainable is if there's also no animal life. In which case, again, what do the elves eat? There are no animals. There's no fruits. Like, uh, what do they eat exactly? Um, uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I've got to say... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, like, Nick, I hear you. I'm not disagreeing with your reading of the text. It absolutely is what the text says, uh, that the things should not age as, you know, she set asleep on them so that they should not age, but wait for a time of, for time of, of awakening. Yeah. But it's not sustainable. Not with an elf population living in it. I mean, it can't. They just like, like it. What do they eat? They have to eat something. Uh, they can't be vegetarians. They can't hunt. You know, they can. So, um, we, uh, even if we, uh, uh, David and I like that phrase. Even if we locally cancel the sleep, right? Even if we have. Uh, the the environs of you know the greater Doriath region being and hey that's a way to keep the 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 gray elves from wandering around too far right uh, but anyway if we if we say only the area around Doriath and I guess presumably the Phallus as well at least they could eat fish I suppose um, though they'd all get scurvy and die eventually but um, but anyway <laughs> talk about your gripping subplots in the Silmarillion film project right the elves of the Phallus in their continuing battle with scurvy um, but anyway and yeah Mike you're right the dwarves gotta eat too Uh and then, right, the Nandor can be uh, can be provided for by the Ensignant Wives because they're laying the sleep in local places over there. But I still can't get around the fact that it's gonna look bad. I mean, it's gonna look like evil is winning already. What we want to show is a peaceful, happy countryside being invaded by orcs, being run over by werewolves, and the evil of of Sauron and Melkor spreading through and corrupting and killing Beleriand. So it has to be alive first. I I think... um, As Margaret points out, that presumably the orcs have to eat also. Right? Um, So, I mean, I just... I don't think the sleep of Yavanna works. I mean, I, I think we have to ditch it. I think we have to ditch it. And when I say it doesn't work, I mean, like, it... 
I've said before, you know, there are lots of things in the Silmarillion that when you begin to actually think through them, when you begin to actually kind of, you know, instead of just reading the, the, the sort of at times disjointed sort of mythic moments of the Silmarillion and you begin to kind of sit down and imagine what is it like to live there and then in that time and place, the sleep of the Ivana just doesn't work. Um, Mike, yes, mythologically it works, narratively it doesn't. Um, I just... um, Nick, I'm totally cool with having Yovana find a way around this, but we need to think of what it is. How can we have... How can we support a, a population of elves, dwarves, and orcs without animals and plants for them to eat? And if we have animals and plants for them to eat, how can we support them with everything dormant and not reproducing? I mean, I, I, I think it's... Um, I'm not saying we have to say that the sleep of Yovana never happened. I'm just saying I, I don't think we can have the sleep of Yovana coinciding with the existence of you know, of, uh, of incarnate populations, you know, of, of, of Hanau populations, uh, in these regions. It's just, it, it, it's not, it can't work, I think. Um, See, uh, okay. So Nick is saying that uh, she puts everything in a state of state of semi-stasis in the groups that have no su- supernatural help, meaning outside of Melian and Treebeard circles, uh, are small enough and mobile enough to manage. Manage what? How? Like, if the sleep is there, there are no animals around, and there's no fruits, so there's no grain or anything. There is literally nothing to eat. So there's nothing to manage on. It's not a question of, like, we must carefully husband our resources, because we have very few of them. We have zero resources. No grains, no fruits, no animals. If we do have any animals, any herbivores, as uh, as Halstein was saying, um, they're, what we have to show them is them devastating the countryside, right? You know, the fields that have been grazed you know, by, like, wild cattle until it's a desert, right? Because it can't grow. And so it's not going to take, it would not take, you know, a, a, a herd of cows long to devastate a plain that didn't grow back, right? Because they eat a lot of grass per day. Um, I just, no, there can't be fruits sitting on the trees in dormancy and then, but again even so how long does that take i i i get, uh, I, 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 I no no um and, and the sleep of ivana would have to apply to animal life which again nothing to eat so it just it doesn't make any sense um uh, i it, it just it doesn't make any sense at all uh not if we're going to have any amount of population, and we need to have some amount of population among the dwarves, among the elves. I think we have to end the sleep of Yovana when the elves awaken. 
I think that when Varda puts the stars up, um, Yavanna foresees the elves coming, and she's not going to let the elves starve to death. So I think that Yavanna, uh, you know, takes off the sleep. It's been some time. Remember, the sleep of Yavanna will already have served its purpose. And remember that that was the like one of the whole points of season two was that the elves, part of the elves' calling was to go around and um, and like nurture and help, uh, you know, Middle Earth, right? To be a blessing to Middle Earth. How are they going to be a blessing to it if it's all still in stasis, right? So I think that we just have to say that the um, uh, the the sleep of Yavanna um, is lifted um, when the elves come, and maybe like as the elves come, like it doesn't have to be lifted everywhere immediately and automatically. Um, but as the elves come there, I, I think that 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 Yavanna would um, would would lift it. Um, and we can still have things change. There can still be a dramatic change when the sun rises. Um, there can be a lot of things that there aren't yet that there will. Like, for instance, David makes a wonderful suggestion. Flowers, right? Flowers and blossoms. There can be no flowers. Well, okay, there are flowers around where Luthien dances, which would really emphasize why that's important, right? How... Uh, how much of a cool glimpse into the power of Luthien does it give us if the only flowers that have ever been in Middle-earth are the ones that spring up around her feet when she dances, right? Uh, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Uh, and and there could be flowers around Melian, too. She can get that from her mom. Um, but, um, but no, Nick, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. It's not that the sleep kills plants. It's that the things that eat plants kill plants if they don't grow back. That's all. It's very simple. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we can have some dramatic changes occur. We can show the, the, the like, increased flowering and fruitfulness. Things can grow much more quickly and lushly. Um, the, the 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 growth of things can be slow and the number of beasts can be smaller all of those all of those kinds of things as well um but um but i th- so so i we can make a dramatic and visible change when the sun arises but we just we cannot have a sustainable ecosystem without growth of plants and without the presence of animals if you have the presence of animals, they're going to eat the plants. The plants need to renew themselves. We can't have the sleep. I mean, it's just, it's not, uh, it's not plausible. Um, so I think that that's what, I, I think that's, that's what we have to, now, do we have the Ents have an effect on things? Absolutely we do. I think that the Ents, that the forests can grow more, you know, we, we can show Treebeard, you know, having some talks with the local trees, right? And encouraging the growth of trees and talking to trees. And, and, uh, uh, and, you know, we can even, I don't know that we will have time to show the sheep becoming like shepherds and the shepherds like sheep. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, I, I think that it's, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, Showing him kind of communing with the trees, I think, would be really cool, and certainly encouraging, encouraging their growth. Um, and yes, exactly. I do think the contrast to the the deadening barrenness uh, uh, around Morgoth, increasingly around Morgoth, would be a nice contrast. Again, especially nicely contrasted 
if the plants are alive and growing. Okay, cool. So conflict between the dwarves and the newcomers. Uh, so we we have Aeol making Anglachel and Anguriel. Yeah, um, those are the two swords. Anguriel is his sword, the sword that Maeglin is going to steal from him and use uh, ultimately um, at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, for instance. And then Anglachel, which is, of course, the sword that he's going to give to Thingol, which Thingol will eventually give to Beleg, uh, which will become Turin's black sword. Um, so yes, both of those. And, and he has a falling out with Telkar of Nograd. We have to be careful because, remember, Aeol is still going to have good relations with the dwarves um, all the way through until the end of his career. So we don't want Aeol to be totally estranged from the dwarves. Um, but uh, um, I would I would like some more information on this. What kind of conflict do you want to have between Aeol and the dwarves? Exactly. I'm forget- maybe we talked about this and I've forgotten. There's nothing more likely than that. Um, but I don't recall why he has to be sort of... Uh, just with Telkar? Okay, why does he have to fall out with Telkar, though? Okay, Telkar doesn't like the swords. Oh, so we get just to use that as a, an indication of the like something ain't right with these swords, right? We need to we need to instill a creepy feeling about these two swords in particular. Um, aha, right, got it, got it. Um, okay, yes, that that would work. So so basically, Aeol is training with Telkar of Nograd and. Uh, makes Anglachel and Anguriel and their their Anguirel. I have never been able to pronounce that stupid sword's name properly. Um, Anguirel. Anguirel. Because the UI is not really diphthonged, really. So that should be two syllables, right? So Anguirel. Anguirel, I think. Man, I don't even know. Um, That's a hard one to say. That's a, that's a, that's a, I, I, I've always struggled with that. Okay, so he's making them, right, the swords, and this is like his, like, senior thesis, right? So in his, like, in the, in the, the training that he's getting from Telkar. So then goes to Telkar and he's like, all right, here are my masterworks, right, these two swords. What do you think of these awesome two swords? And Telkar gets the heebie-jeebies, right? He's like, these swords creep me out in a very serious way. Uh, something ain't right with you and something definitely ain't right with these swords. Um... Uh, yeah, so Tony, we can show the difference, as you say, between Aeol and Telkar, the, uh, um, um, uh, in their temperaments, right, in their attitudes, uh, Telkar being humble, uh, and, uh, you know, sort of not about asserting her own personality, um, because we made Telkar a woman, right? We made Telkar a female, as I recall, right? And then, uh, um, uh, Aeol is 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 haughty and and puts his own character and his own personality um, uh, into uh, into it. Right, so we have yeah, cool. All right, good. I like that. Uh, when the Ents enter Osirian, uh, they come into direct conflict with the dwarves of Nograd. I, you know, less so Belagost. I'm still kind of holding out for the dwarves of Belagost to be the. Dw- I mean, I don't want to just have the dwarves of Nograd and Belgost be like the good dwarves and the bad dwarves, right? I don't want to... And, and I think I like having Telkar from Nograd for that reason, to sort of, you know, Telkar is like the redemption of the dwarves of Nograd, right? To show that they're not all bad and that we don't just have, you know, the the one 
um, you know, always good set of dwarves and the one always bad set of dwarves. So I, I like that. Um, but, um, but nevertheless, it is still the dwarves of Nogrod who are going to be the biggest problem. I mean, they're going to be the ones who ultimately go to war with Thingol. So, um, you know, I think we're okay sort of uh, setting setting that up. Um, but yes, absolutely, there's going to be problems because the dwarves will... The, remember, remember our map here, right? So if you look at our map, Nogrod is right there. Right, Nogard and Belgost are quite close to each other. Um, I, I'd kind of like to separate them a little bit more. Can we? You think we can? I, I know, like altering the map. I'd kind of like to shove Belgost a little further north, but whatever. The point is, here's Nogrod, right here by the river Askar, which is important because, of course, that's where the battle is going to happen later on, as the dwarves of Nogrod are fleeing back to Nogrod after having killed Thingol and and uh, uh, and destroyed Doriath. Okay, no, not. After having destroyed Doriath, the killing of Thingol came earlier. Anyway, the point is, they're coming back, and that's where Baron uh, meets them and ambushes them, and of course Treebeard is going to ambush them there and stuff. But the point is, here there's Nagrod right next to Osirian, right? So the 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 woodlands here, um, you know, here in the uplands on the on the western side of the uh, of the the Blue Mountains will be the primary place where the dwarves of Nagrod are getting their wood. Right, so uh, uh, that would lead to issues, right, with uh, Treebeard, presumably. Um, so that makes that makes a, a good deal of sense to me. Back to right, all right. Um, uh, we got the sleep of Yavanna, which again I think we've solved that issue. The Green Elves are the likely mediator between the two groups. The Thingol could get involved. I don't see the Green Elves as a mediator. I think they're entirely on the side of the Ents, actually. Um, so I think that, rather, Treebeard would be the one first to get offended, <clears throat> right? Uh, so Treebeard could get kind of roused about this, right? He could see the fields of, like, because the, the dwarves wouldn't care, really, right? I mean, they just... So he could come, and, and there's, like, the whole side of the mountain, and, like, down into the valley is just stumps, Right? And Treebeard would be ticked, right? Treebeard would would get a little bit roused about this, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking that the Green Elves. I'm thinking that uh, you know Denethor. He's right with him, right? Um, not necessarily that Denethor feels exactly the same thing, but he's entirely on Treebeard's side, right? So Treebeard's mad. He's mad, right? So, uh, so it would need to be. We would need to have Sindar be mediators. Who would do it? Who your Thingol? Whom do you send? Whom do you send? I know whom you send. I know who I would send if I... Caliborn, exactly. I'm thinking the same thing, Nick and Mike. Absolutely. He sends Caliborn. So this is where Caliborn meets Treebeard. Right, Caliborn meets Treebeard when he is sent as a mediator uh, to come and mediate between the dwarves and the green elves there in Osirian. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um... Diron should be there too, maybe. I mean, if we want to give Diron a little bit of uh, a little bit more play, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we could do that, but I think Kelborn should definitely lead the embassy there. Um, okay. 
and the uh, the green elves and dwarves largely ignore one another after the mediation, right? They kind of agree to disagree, I guess, um, which makes it difficult for the Sindar to coordinate the defense of East Beleriand. Yeah, and this is going to be the challenge because as we're moving into the next... Um, one of the one of the major things that's going to be happening here is we're going to be we're going to be seeing the onset of war, right? Thingol and Melian are now more as as Sauron is invading, right? The invasion has begun, so there's going to be now a certain amount of urgency. We need to arm, we need to coordinate, we need to we need to form we need to form active alliances here and begin to coordinate tactically and everything so that we can defend against the invasion already in progress, right? So. Um, the fact that now Thingol... This is why... One of the primary reasons why Thingol has got to mediate here. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, good point. Good point, uh, Tony. Uh, Dairon needs to make contact with the dwarves so that the dwarves can get the Kirth. Yeah, maybe that's... Maybe that's what tips the scales. Right? Maybe... Uh, uh, now, I mean, they could have gotten it already, but that would be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? If... Uh, the dwarves are so taken by the runes of Diaron that uh, they're kind of appeased by this. Like that, you know, the, they don't see why they should stop, uh, you know, cutting down all the trees for wood. Oh, we did the Kirith back in episode four, Nick. Yeah, okay, that's a shame. It would be an interesting bargaining chip here, but I guess we already used it as a bargaining chip. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. No problem. Um. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we already used it as a bargaining chip. That's, that's, that's fine. That's all good. So that's how. That's one of the ways in which we help to uh, establish the alliance at the beginning. Well, that's fine. So this is more about preserving the alliance. Um, so why will the dwarves of Nogrod stop? Uh, stop uh, cutting down all the forests. I mean, they're going to need to stop, or else we're going to have problems. Right, uh, Treebeard isn't gonna isn't just gonna get unaroused, you know. I mean, he's 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 not gonna just gonna pipe down and be like, "All right, it's fine. Keep on cutting down the forest. I don't care." So, uh, no one's just gonna talk Treebeard down from that. Um, so, the dwarves are gonna have to compromise. Why would they compromise? Why? Because they they you know, as Owlay said, and yet they will have need of wood, right? So they're gonna have need of wood. Um, now, remember, the thing about the dwarves is that they're in the mountains, which means they have access to both sides of the mountains. So, on the one hand, there's no reason... To, I mean, I'm thinking the ultimate solution from the dwarf standpoint uh, is that they uh, um, they would just get their... They'll just, like, go to the other side. They'll just be like, well, let's just go to somewhere where the green these green elves and ants are not and get our... You know, like, we don't care. We've been getting our wood from here. Let's just get it from somewhere else, right? Let's go over to the... Let's go over to the east side uh, of the mountains. Um, you know, like, east and a little north. Anyway, there are no green elves over there. The ants all came over here, so let's... Uh, let's... Uh, whatever. It's fine. Um, I... And then the ants would be happy, but the dwarves would also be kind of duplicitous, right? The dwarves could be like, okay, we'll stop, but they haven't really stopped. They've just moved, right? So the ants could find this out again later on. And like, because remember, Treebeard still does not, has not forgiven the dwarves, right? Uh, Treebeard has a, a pretty firm, retains a pretty firm anti-dwarf bias into the Third Age, 
right? Uh, so that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking towards. I'm thinking towards uh, we need to ease the grievance here. Uh, that certainly is going to be Thingol's motivation, but we don't need to remove it entirely. I mean, it's going to, this is going to be, uh, there, I was about to say there's going to be an axe to grind between the two of them, but that would be a particularly ironic way of framing that, that, that issue. Um, so yeah, that they, uh, um, uh, so I was thinking of that semi-duplicitous, not actually duplicitous. Like the dwarves wouldn't actually say, we promise we'll never cut down another tree. We'll just be like, we promise we will leave your forests here in peace. And they do. They just don't mention the fact they're going to go cut down other forests, um, you know, somewhere else. Um, some of you are talking about the discovery of coal. Yeah, the discovery of coal would be fine, but it's not primarily for fires that they would need the wood. I mean, they would they would still build with wood, and they would use wood in their mind. I mean, I think wood would still be a tool that they would use, um, uh, even though they're primarily shaping stone and living underground. Um, but I, I, I would think that they would they would they would still use wood uh, and would need wood um, to use in their building and uh, and to assist in their process and stuff. So um, uh, it's not. It's not. A, I wasn't thinking even of wood exclusively, or even primarily as a, as a, as a fuel source necessarily. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, exactly. Housing like scaffolding and um, you know to support. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there would be. Uh, um, yeah. Um, well, Nick, you're right. If they, you know, shifted to coal burning or something, they would be able to have a replaceable level of lumber cutting. Yeah, but why? Like, I, I don't want them to. Like, I don't want the dwarves to go green. The whole point is not to make the dwarves go green. If the dwarves went green, then they would be fine with the ants. I want them to be unfine with the ants. Um, besides which, I don't see why the, dwar- the dwarves wouldn't care. Like, they're not stopping cutting down trees because they care about the trees. Um, they just don't want to get their butts, their lumberjacks getting their butts kicked by the dents, right? So, uh, and they're willing to make peace with the green elves. <clears throat> they look down on the green elves and they don't care about the green, they don't trade with the green elves. What do the green elves have, right? Uh, you know, like if we're going to help them chip flints, they, I mean, they despise the green elves, but the Sindar now, that's different, right? Um, they want to keep getting the sweet pearls. They, 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 they see value in maintaining good relations with Thingol. So when Thingol, when Celeborn comes with the embassage from Thingol to intervene and say, please, we got to work out your differences with the green elves and ants, they're going to say, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll do something. But they're going to actually change. They're not going to actually take it to heart. I don't see why they would, right? Because they don't care. All they care about is temporizing with the Sindar. Because, see, I, I, because here's the other thing. Dwarves are not heroes, right? I, Azakal is going to be a hero. We're going to have, like, the dwarves of Belagost are going to, are going to acquit themselves pretty well. But I am totally fine. By the way, I am conceptually fine with having, especially the dwarves of no- Nogrod, <clears throat> supplying the orcs. I, 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 Tolkien had them explicitly doing that uh, in the 1937 Quinta and the 19, 
1930 Quentin Older Inwa. Uh, the dwarves are arms dealers to both sides, profiteering off the war between the orcs and the elves shamelessly. Right? Um, I, I'm not saying we have to go that far to make them all of them that way all the time. Um, we can make some of them better than others, and some of them, uh, uh, but, but some of them are pretty bad lots. Uh, and I, I'm fine with that. I don't think that we need to make the dwarves just be like different but misunderstood. Um, I, 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 um, I no see, David. I do want to depict the dwarves as being unrepentantly duplicitous. Not all of them, but some of them, absolutely. Absolutely. No problem with them being unrep- unrepentantly do, do Again, I think that there should be a, uh, uh, a, 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 at least a strong party among the dwarves of Nograd at least, who are open advocates for playing both sides and doing arms deals with Sauron and the orcs. Um, approaching Sauron to say, hey, let's do business, right? I, I mean, I, I think that's... Um, um, that... that I don't think they're going to be stupid about it. I don't think they're not going to openly come out on uh, on Morgoth's side. But I also don't think they're going to wholeheartedly and unilaterally commit themselves to the elves' side either. Remember that the relationship between the elves of Khazad Dûm and the, uh, the the dwarves of Khazad Dûm and the elves of Eregion is going to be an unprecedented and unparalleled friendship. Nowhere else has there ever been true friendship between the dwarves and the elves before. The dwarves are never going to be really, truly reliable allies. What Azekhal does at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears is going to be an exception, not the rule. And what the so and 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 everything that we see from the House of Durin later on. Right, the dwarves of Erebor, and you know, down to Gimli, the dwarf in the Fellowship of the Ring. That is a legacy of the Moria situation, of the Khazad-dûm situation. Right, they are the descendants of those who established that unparalleled friendship with the elves of Eregion. Right, that's an aberration. That is countercultural for the dwarves. Um. So yeah, I think that we need to make uh, we need to make them uh, we need to make them fundamental like the fundamentally self serving as uh, uh, Tony as that's the phrase that you were just using absolutely absolutely and willing to and and not <clears throat> not on the side of certainly on the side of the ants and and not on the side of the elves exactly working with them because it profits them right the, 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 it advantages them. And there will be some of the dwarves, like Azakal, the lord of Belagost, who will also decide that throwing in with the elves and men uh, in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears is in the dwarves' interest, right? That opposing Morgoth is the way to go, right? But that's not the only... Uh, that's not the only uh, approach, right? That's not the only way that they that they look at these things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
Nick, I agree. We do need to see the dwarves get something out of the negotiations with Celeborn. That's why I like the idea of Dairon coming and giving the Kirth here. And it's totally fine. If we already gave him the Kirth, it's, that's cool. Um, I'm not saying that we have to revise that. But yeah, I think so. Like, we want to not get killed is good, but that's not a motivation. That's a reason not to have a grudge. And remember, they're not going to take that kind of thing lying down. The dwarves are going to hold a grudge. <clears throat> that Treebeard and the Ants are not going to forget this, but neither are the dwarves, okay? So if we want to prevent, uh, you know, cont- and th- the Green Elves need to live there near to Nograd more or less peaceably. We can't have open warfare between the Green Elves uh, and their Entish allies and the dwarves of Nograd for the entirety of the First Age, right? So we do need to establish peace. Um, I don't know what. I don't know how they would profit. Um, Because they're not going to profit with wood. I mean, it's not like Treebeard is going to be like, okay, I'll agree to make some other forests grow just so that you can cut them down. Treebeard's not going to do that, right? No way, are you kidding me? So they can't be bargaining with them, like, for wood. Um, No. Can you imagine Treebeard compromising on that? Like, let us kill just a few of your friends instead of all of your friends. Let Let us kill your friends... We promise to kill your friends, like, less indiscriminately. And Treebeard's like, well, okay, as long as you're less indiscriminate about it. I mean, I, I, that's, that's not going to... I can't imagine that Treebeard is going gonna, is gonna, to, like, come to the table with that, right? Um, uh, the Green Elves supplying them with food. Nick, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And, of course, foreshadowing the people of Dale and the Lonely Mountain, right? Yeah, so maybe the dwarves are sick of going out and growing food, and, and, and maybe the food that they have underground is kind of uh, boring and unvaried, uh, and they don't like, they can't be bothered uh, going out and farming a whole lot, and maybe they don't even know anything about farming. Um, they've got potatoes and mushrooms, right? But, they, you know, so may, maybe their food is... Uh, could they, they, they like the food that uh, the Green Elves could give them. Yeah, okay, great. I like that. I like that. So the, the Green Elves will feed them, and they will agree not to cut down the trees. And they'll just go and cut the trees down later on, which the ants can find out and get ticked off about. So, cool. Um, all right, excellent. We got to go. I'm, uh, I'm getting late here. <clears throat> Last slide. So we've already talked about the, uh, the, the Elves of uh, Doriath. To some extent, um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, right, so the elves of Dor- Doriath are there. There, the, the, the impending war is clear. The invasion is beginning. Um, the police of the police, the peace of Beleriand. I shouldn't combine words like that. Is marred. Um, the elves are gathering in Doriath. Right, um, he does. It, it, the, the the stepping up of diplomacy is important, right? He's gonna. He needs to arm the elves. Um, he needs to try to recruit the dwarves to be their active allies in battle. That shouldn't be assumed that the dwarves are willing to do that. Right? The dwarves could say the the orcs are no threat to them. Right? They have their mountain festivals. They're like, we're just gonna lock the doors and we'll be fine. Um, y'all who live out there on the plains, it's your lookout. Right, it profits them to trade for weapons and armor. Right, so they <clears throat> they'd be willing to enter into a into a contract to supply the elves with arms. But as far as going into battle themselves, that's going to be much trickier. Right, and I I would think that negotiations would kind of break down on that point a little bit. I don't think the dwarves are going to come out and fight too much here. Um, 
<clears throat> whom does he send for that? So Celeborn gets sent down to Nogrod to be the mediator uh, in the Ent Green Elf dwarf dispute down there. Whom does he send like to Belagost in order to get arms and try to convince them to fight? Mablung, maybe? Probably. Mablung. Or if Mablung is leading the military, maybe Beleg goes. I could see that working, too. Um, <clears throat> yeah, David, I was kind of thinking of Mablung negotiating for war needs and going to try to rally them and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, Nick, maybe Dairon goes with him there, since, you know, they have a, a great respect for Dairon. That works. Ooh. Ooh, Tony says, what about Cyros? Oh, what a great question. What a great question. Yeah. Cyrus. For those of you who don't remember who Cyrus is, <clears throat> Cyrus is the the elf who gets the the drinking vessel chucked in his face uh, by um, by Turin. <clears throat> we do need to bring Cyrus in. Yeah, yeah. Maybe have him be a suave negotiator, and he helps to accomplish something here, and that's why, and that's part of why he gets a really high opinion of himself. Yeah, that's definitely worth remembering, Tony. That's a good call. Um, okay. <clears throat> As you can hear, I'm losing my voice, which is bad because I know the stream after this. All right. Think uh, I'll test the limits of the diplomacy he's already established with the dwarves. Yeah, okay, we got that. Um, the Sindar are counting on the green elves for help, right? So um, Celeborn can also be talking with the green elves about that, like you guys will help us, right? Uh, yeah, good, good. The Green Elves are fleeing danger and have little interest in getting involved in a war. Right, but they'll listen. They're sympathetic. It's clearly in their interest, and they would see... They would they would remember the kinship between them and, and, uh, and Thingol. So that would be... that You know... Getting them to take an interest in the war wouldn't be a problem. <clears throat> They're just not very military. I agree that they, Thingol should invite the Green Elves to move to Menegroth for shelter and they, they would decline the invitation, but say that they would be willing to help. Because they will. They're going to come and fight and get destroyed, but they're going to they're, they're gonna, they're gonna still fight. You know, uh, good effort. Poor execution. <laughs> or, <clears throat> well, the execution goes the other way, doesn't it? But anyway, okay. All right. Um, yeah, Nick, I agree. They just have no concept what they're up against. Um, their only experience with conflict has been the occasional great beast hunt, right? <clears throat> so yeah, they're not going to be, they're going to have no idea. Bulldog is going to, is going to hit him like a wrecking ball. Okay. Or rather, Bulldog and his army is going to, it's more than a wrecking ball. It's going to be more like a steamroller, really, or a meat grinder. Okay. <clears throat> Good. So questions for next time. In the next episode, we're scheduled to return to the Noldor. It's time for the doom of Mandos leading then to the to the uh, betrayal and the burning of the ships in episode 8. So this is episode 6. Uh, episode 7 is going to be the Doom of Mandos. Episode 8 is going to lead up to the burning of the ships. So, <clears throat> how do we introduce the Doom of Mandos? Right, they're going to be traveling. They will have been traveling for a long time, and then they come across Mandos, and Mandos delivers his doom. Uh, how does this happen? Does this just random? Uh, I mean, I had this image of them coming across Mando standing up on a cliff like Tim the Enchanter in the Holy Grail, right? Um, or do we need more <clears throat> more build up? 
than that? Um, how exactly, uh, how exactly do we make this happen? And then, uh, uh, so that's my first question. You know, how, just how, how do we, how do we, how do we set that up? And then, of course, we need to be thinking about our primary Noldor characters. How do they respond to the Doom? We're going to get a variety of reactions, right? We know some big picture things, like Finarfin is going to choose to go home. That's going to be one of the things. Finarfin saying, that's it, forget it, I'm out of here, I'm going back to Valinor. That's going to be one of the things that happens. But, but how does he separate from his sons, right? Why do Finrod... Uh, uh, and we know Galadriel, right? So we're gonna have a Galadriel reaction, obviously. Why does Why does Finrod decide to keep going? Why does he go home with his dad, right? Um, how does exactly how does Fingolfin respond uh, to the Doom of Mandos? Uh, how does uh, Fingon respond to the Doom of, my, of, of 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 Mandos? So you know, all of our important characters. How do we uh, How do we How do we have them respond? We're going to get in Beleriand, the Battle of the Havens. So the werewolves are going to descend upon the Havens, and Círdan is going to flee. Círdan and his people are going to flee in their ships. Remember, that sets them up so that from a distance they can see. They'll be off the coast, and they'll see the burning of the ships from a distance and go up to investigate. So um, we need to get them on shipboard by the end of Episode 7, so they can do that in Episode 8. Um, what's the Battle of the Havens going to be like? Are we going to have a big fight, or are they just going to run away as soon as the werewolves descend? Do we, you know, do 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 we make this into like an action sequence? Or I'm just not sure if we make it simply a route or simply a flight, or do, do we make it a battle? Wonder what you guys thought about that. <clears throat> and then what's Thingol up to? In our outline, we didn't have anything from Thingol in this episode. <clears throat> do we get any, any of him in this episode? <clears throat> Another general concern. Oh man, I'm getting worse and worse. <clears throat> Another general concern: How do we handle the adv- advance of Bulldog? Right, the um, battle. Back to the map. Um, the the map the the battle between the orcs and the green elves <clears throat> is not going to happen until like episode nine. We're going to get or ten. We're going to get. It, we have to delay for several episodes. So we have Bulldog coming down in episode six. But the big battle isn't going to happen until episode 9 or 10. What's he going to do? How do we remind our viewers that he's there without a big battle happening? So that's my last question, which is admittedly kind of vague. But it's just like, so, oops, what's going on with Thingol and with Bulldog? Um, you know, anything. Do we just skip him and it's okay or what? So, okay. Um, <clears throat> those are Those are my questions for next time. Uh, and I've just enough voice left to say goodbye. <laughs> so thanks, everybody, for joining me today. This has been really fun. Uh, please do give me your feedback on your thoughts about uh, what we do vis-a-vis uh, the Third Age and the question about jumping ahead to anticipate Amazon <clears throat> and all that stuff. And uh, I, will, uh, I will talk to you guys again soon. So I will say, as always, thanks for listening, and Godspeed.